The uh, Committee on Homeland Security will come to order. The Committee is meeting today to examine the findings of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel on Biodefense and the recently released uh, report. Former Senator Lieberman and former Governor Ridge and the panel's co-chairs will update committee members on the panel's work and the state of the United States biosecurity leadership and programs, including recommendations for improving our biodefense posture. I now recognize myself for an opening uh, statement. Uh, I want to welcome Senator Lieberman and Governor Ridge back to the committee. Um, you've worked uh, very well together in a bipartisan way. We certainly appreciate your service to uh, uh, both the past and present service to our, our nation. Thank you so much for being here. Um, uh, particularly on this issue of biodefense, the threat from weapons of mass destruction may have faded from public view since 9-11, but the dangers have not diminished, and terrorist and rogue states are as committed as ever to obtaining uh, weapons of mass destruction, capabilities to intimidate our people and to inflict unspeakable harm. Unfortunately, our level of readiness has not kept pace with a growing risk. Last year, the Ebola crisis uh, showed us that we are not fully prepared to, to confront biological threats. Uh, we learned the federal government did not have the systems in place to address the situation and lack uh, clear lines of authority. We learned that many frontline healthcare workers did not have the skills or basic, or basic training needed. And we learned that officials lacked a plan for communicating the government's response to the public, including reassuring the American people that it could keep the contagion from spreading through international air travel. Fortunately, we kept the virus from spreading, but there were important lessons to be learned. We know that terrorists are still set on obtaining WMD devices to use in their attacks. We've seen groups like ISIS use makeshift chemical weapons on the battlefield and boast about plans to smuggle radiological material into the United States. And with recent FBI stings in places like Moldova, we know that there are sellers ready to supply the ingredients for the tools of terror. Bioterrorism is especially alarming. Technological advances have put dangerous biological agents within reach of extremist groups, capabilities that were previously available only to nation states. And we also know there's no shortage of enemies who would seek to bring WMD devices into our country if they had the opportunity. At our recent uh, Worldwide Threats hearing, FBI Director James Comey indicated the potential smuggling of a weapon of mass destruction into the Western Hemisphere uh, and in, in his opinion, called it a very serious threat. That is why we must take the recommendations of Senator Lieberman and Governor Ridge very seriously. Over the course of the past year, their study panel hosted a number of meetings to address the, the full spectrum of bioterror threat, and their final report provides a thorough review of the challenges we face on that front. It makes 33 recommendations on a number of topics, including leadership, strategy, intelligence gathering and dissemination, medical countermeasures, and response. It comes as no surprise to me that one of your main findings is the lack of federal leadership and coordination at the highest levels of the executive branch. With a dozen agencies playing a role in the biodefense space, we must have a senior individual coordinating these efforts. Indeed, one of the main questions I asked during the Ebola response was who is in charge? Unfortunately, that would still be an open question today. 
And that is why I've advocated for the reinstatement of the Special Assistant to the President for Biodefense. Your report calls for the designation of the Vice President as a responsible official, along with the development of a White House Biodefense Coordination Council. I look forward to discussing this recommendation and why you believe the Vice President would be in the best position to address uh, this threat. We are also interested in your assessment of the responsibilities of the Department of Homeland Security in this space. The report highlights shortcomings of the department's biological surveillance and detection efforts through the National Biosurveillance Integration System and BioWatch program. The committee shares your concerns and has a long history of conducting oversight on MBIS and BioWatch. In fact, the Emergency Preparedness Subcommittee, after holding a hearing on bioterrorism a threat earlier this year, is planning to an additional hearing on biosurveillance and detection later this year. The committee is currently considering the department's proposal to consolidate a number of its WMD functions into a new CBRNE office. Your argument about the need for leadership and coordination for biodefense also rings true for chemical, bi radiological, nuclear, and explosive activities. This is a priority for Secretary Johnson, and I believe that consolidating the various offices within the department with responsibility uh, for CBRNE uh, will elevate the mission and fix a broken bureaucracy so that we can keep our nation safe. Finally, I'd be remiss if I didn't highlight your discussion of the fragmented congressional jurisdiction for Homeland Security oversight. Ranking mem member Thompson and I share this, and Chairman King before me have repeatedly called for the consolidation of congressional jurisdiction and we will make a uh, proposed rules change in the next Congress. I hope you will join us uh, in this effort uh, to fix this once and for all. It's the only 9-11 recommendation that is yet to be fulfilled. And shame on the Congress for not doing that. I'll continue to work on this issue with the new speaker to ensure Congress can address some of the oversight challenges you're, uh, you discuss in the report. Hearings like this give us a better sense of what we're up against and how we can make sure our agencies are prepared to keep WMD threats from reaching our shores and respond to them decisively if they do. We certainly appreciate all the hard work uh, that you've done and commitment to uh, uh, the challenges we face uh, and your service to our great nation. And with that, uh, the chair now recognizes the ranking member. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'd like to thank you for holding today's hearing. I'm pleased that our committee regularly conducts oversight of federal biodefense efforts, even when we are not responding to an active crisis. I'd also like to welcome our three panelists, uh, Senator Lieberman, Governor Ridge, and Dr. Cole, uh, back to the committee. Uh, the release of the Blue Ribbon Study Panel Report this month is timely. One year ago, well, after the Ebola virus was determined to be a material threat, a U.S hospital diagnosed a case for the first time. Although the Ebola case was ultimately contained, the Ebola cases reveal gaps in our federal biodefense infrastructure that we have known about for decades but have not meaningfully addressed. Most notably, we focused on determining who is in charge. Leadership appears to shift from personnel at the White House to the Centers for Disease Control to the National Institutes of Health. Nearly one month after the first Ebola case was diagnosed, 
the administration appointed an Ebola czar, despite the facts that HSPD-5, HSPD-10, the National Response Framework, and the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act all provided relevant leadership structures that could have been activated at any point. We should not reinvent the wheel every time there's a crisis, and we should not put biodefense on the back burner between outbreaks or attacks. Progress takes persistence and leadership. So, although I have some questions about the particular structure proposed by the Blue Ribbon Panel, uh, I was pleased that the report's first uh, several recommendations addressed the biodefense leadership vacuum and a need for improved coordination. The chair already spoke about his concern also about uh, the recommendation on the vice president uh, assuming a leadership role in that, and I think we need to flush that out a little bit. Uh, uh, and I look forward to the discussion. But I also look forward to discussing your proposals uh, to address our biodefense leadership gap further and to better understand how you envision the Department of Homeland Security's role in this space. As you are aware, for various reasons, DHS has struggled to carry out its biodefense programs. The Government Accountability Office recently issued a report critical of DHS's signature biosurveillance program, the National Biosurveillance Integration Center. We have learned that despite DHS's efforts to build NBIC's ability to identify bioevents early, it lacks the funding and data access necessary to carry out that mission. The Blue Ribbon Panel report echoes many of GAO's criticism. DHS's biodetection program, BioWatt, has been similarly criticized. In 2001, the National Academy of Sciences described uh, the circumstances under which the currently deployed BioWatch technology would be useful as follows. If a large-scale aerosol attack occurs where BioWatch is deployed, if an air sampler lies in the path of the release, and if pathogen used in one of those included in the BioWatch laboratory assays. In April 2014, after years of cost overruns and delays, DHS decided to cancel the acquisition of BioWatch Gen 3 after GAO report revealed fundamental flaws in the acquisition. The panel's report identified similar challenges with the currently deployed BioWatch system and the need, urgent need for better technology. In light of these findings, I'd be interested in the witnesses' thoughts on how DHS can address the challenges it had experienced in the biodefense mission space and how its potential can be better developed and leveraged. Additionally, the Ebola cases last year reminded us that our local EMS providers and hospitals are our boots on the ground during a biodefense incident. Unfortunately, hospital preparedness for biological event is not consistent across the country. I'd be interested to understand how the recommendations in this report addresses that problem and to learn how hospitals and the medical community are working to improve hospital preparedness. Finally, I'd be remiss if I did not acknowledge 
Congress's role in the failure to make meaningful progress to address biodefense challenges. Uh, former committee member Congressman Pascrell and former Chairman King have introduced the WMD Prevention and Preparedness Act, which would implement many recommendations made by past commissions studying our biodefense gaps three times. Uh, maybe, Mr. King, we might can get some attention at some point <laughs> on, on that. Uh, and unfortunately, this bill has never been enacted. We must do better, and I'm eager to explore each of the panel's recommendations and determine what makes sense to implement. Uh, I thank the witnesses again for being here today, and I look forward to that testimony. I yield back. I thank the ranking member. Other members are reminded that opening uh, statements may be submitted for the record. We're pleased to have a, a distinguished panel of witnesses before us here today on this important topic. Uh, first, the Honorable uh, Thomas Ridge uh, currently serves as Chief Executive Officer of Ridge Global, an international security and risk management advisory firm. Uh, previously, Secretary Ridge served as the first assistant to the President for Homeland Security following the events of 9-11 and the first Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Uh, next, uh, Mr. Joseph Lieberman currently serves as a senior counsel at the New York law firm of Kasowitz, Benson, Torres, and Friedman. Previously, he served as a member of the United States Senate from Connecticut for 24 years. That's uh, quite an accomplishment uh, as we sit here uh, looking <laughs> out today. Uh, while in the Senate, Mr. Lieberman served as the chairman of, of the um, Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee and as a member of the Armed uh, Services Committee. Thank both of you for your service to the country. Uh, finally, Dr. Leonard Cole serves as an adjunct professor at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School and Rutgers University Newark, an expert on bioterrorism and terror medicine. He is also the director of the program on terror medicine and security at Rutgers New Jersey Medical School. I want to thank other witnesses for being here today. Your full statements will appear in the record. Chair now recognizes Secretary Ridge for an opening statement. So good morning, uh, Chairman McCall, Ranking Member Thompson, ladies and gentlemen, members of the committee. First of all, I want to thank you for the opportunity to appear before you, particularly with my friend and colleague, Senator Lieberman, and such a distinguished academic as Dr. Cole. We're grateful for the opportunity. I realize you've read the report. I'm not going to go itemize the recommendations, but I would like to highlight some of those that we think are critically important. Together, the recommendations address the entire spectrum of biodefense activities, prevention, deterrence, preparedness, detection, response, attribution, recovery, and mitigation. And as you know, we also include about 100 specific action items associated uh, with these. They address programs, legislation, and policy. In the short, mid, and long term, we want to make perfectly clear who should execute each item that we recommend, exactly what they should do, and in what time frame they should do it. Let me highlight several of our recommendations. First is leadership. Our first recommendation is to centralize leadership at the highest level of government in the person of the Vice President of the United States. We have multiple federal departments and agencies in well-intentioned well efforts addressing very specific aspects of biodefense. 
And it is our opinion that they need more than someone in the White House simply trying to achieve consensus among them. I can speak to that from personal experience. It may not be a difficult task. It may be nearly impossible. These departments and agencies need centralized leadership from someone with the imprimatur of the president in a position that remains in place. It's permanent, regardless of changes in personalities or, frankly, regardless of the party in power. The vice president needs some tools to ensure effective and cohesive biodefense for this country. One of those tools is a budget. We recommend unifying the budget for biodefense and giving the vice president authority over it. The members of the executive branch must put forward budgets for programs that make sense as part of the entire biodefense infrastructure not just what each individual department and agency thinks they should be doing. The Vice President needs another tool. That's a comprehensive biodefense strategy. There are too many biodefense strategy and policy documents lying around in this town. There are too many to be useful in guiding and achieving an integrated, cohesive national biodefense infrastructure. We recommend that the White House develop the National Biodefense Strategy for the United States of America and that the Vice President make this the top priority. In addition, after the White House creates the strategy, obviously they need to develop an implementation plan. And we make specific recommendations in that regard and suggest the last tool the Vice President needs is a Biodefense Coordination Council. It needs participation from both federal and non-federal stakeholders. We are of the opinion that you cannot build the most effective biodefense infrastructure if you think it can be done inside the Beltway. We can't protect the country as well-intentioned as many programs there are. You need uh, federal and non-federal, state, local, academic, and the private sector engagement in this effort. I know this committee is particularly interested in biosurveillance and biodetection. We recognized years ago that having multiple surveillance systems did not mean much if the data could not be integrated and could not produce information useful for making real-time decisions. We also recognize the need for early detection. The DHS has made only limited progress with BioWatch and the National Biosurveillance Integration System, or NBIS, and at a great expense. Uh, we recommend that either uh, we make these effective tools or we replace them. DOD and NASA, among others, have fielded more advanced uh, biodetectors. DHS has implemented some biosurveillance pilots at the state level, and we are advised that they are working far better than what the department has attempted at the national level. We do not recommend continuing on with BioWatch and NBIS the way they are presently constructed. Obviously, once you detect a biological event, you're going to have to respond. And medical countermeasures will be among the most important elements of that response. We think there are far, far too many bureaucratic hurdles in order to get uh, a contract uh, developed and uh, initiatives undertaken to begin to develop countermeasures. And uh, we also think that it's ripe for the opportunity to build a different kind of public-private partnership in working with industries to develop incentives to develop in a cost-effective way uh, medical countermeasures. Uh, not everything has to cost money, 
Uh, we think HHS leadership should return contracting authority to the director of the Biomedical Advanced Research and Development Authority, or BARDA. We also think the government can save money by developing incentives together with the industry. Uh, we also know that, let's say I'm well over my time, so let me just uh, conclude uh, very briefly. Uh, we like the notion of paradigm of One Health. Uh, we don't think there's been enough emphasis paid on the connectivity between zoonotic diseases and the pathogens about which we are most concerned. Uh, we think that uh, understanding the integration of the, the capabilities we have, whether it's uh, biosurveillance and the authorities and, and the capabilities we have to respond and recover uh, from these uh, pathogens and the relationship between animal disease and health disease is critically uh, important for us to have a comprehensive uh, integrated system. Uh, we also recommend uh, addressing intelligence collection, attribution, the select agent program, et cetera, et cetera. Finally, let me comment, uh, Mr. Chairman, on something that you said, and Senator Lieberman and I looked at each other and smiled. As former Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, I had 108 committees and subcommittees to report to. I spent more time on the Hill than Secretary of Defense did, and he had two wars going on in Afghanistan and Iraq. Now, the proliferation of committees and subcommittees over the biodefense uh, domain isn't as significant. But anything that uh, this committee uh, and the leadership, and both calling on both the uh, House and Senate Republican and Democrat leadership to narrow, to narrow the aperture of responsibility and accountability, not only for DHS, particularly around uh, biodefense, we would welcome. One of the uh, interesting appendices in this report, it will show you the multiple jurisdictions over very specific items of uh, about defense. And so I would conclude by simply saying there are a lot of well-intentioned programs. I mean, there are 25 laws and presidential directors and treaties dealing with biodefense. You've got a multiplicity of organizations. Every department asks, and justifiably so, for more money for their specific uh, enterprise. But ultimately, if we're serious about biodefense, an integrative, comprehensive, approach with somebody having budget authority located in the White House, preferably right next to the President of the United States, we think maximizes our ability uh, to deal with the threat. It's not like uh, the threat that we're waiting. The threat already exists. It's how we're prepared to respond and recover from it. I thank the uh, committee for the opportunity to share these thoughts with you this morning. Yeah, and we thank you. We look forward to working with you uh, moving forward in the future on both of those important issues. Uh, next, the chair recognizes Senator Lieberman for an opening statement. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Chairman McCall, Ranking Member Thompson, Mr. Keating. Uh, thank you uh, for having us here. It's great to be back here. Let me, let me first thank you for the um, historic interest and focus of this committee on the biodefense problem and challenge. I think you've really been uh, uh, leaders in that, and I want to thank you specifically for convening this hearing on our report less than a week after uh, we issued it. We, we appreciate uh, that attention very much, and uh, you know, no good deed goes un unrewarded or unpunished. So we, we hope uh, as this um, hearing goes on, you will uh, feel that um, strongly enough about at least some of the recommendations we make here that you will become champions for them, both in your legislative and oversight uh, capacities. Uh, this is a, a, a panel that came together Stimulated, frankly, by um, um, a guy named Bob Cadillac, who many of you know, who 
I was our founding staff director, worked in uh, the White House uh, on this specific area in the last administration, and um, um, housed at the Hudson Institute here. Uh, I'm very proud of the reports. Uh, the panel itself was surprisingly small for these operations, and uh, a, a totally bipartisan. So um, great to be working again with Tom Ridge, who, who I not only have such great admiration for, I even like him. I mean, this is really, <laughs> I, I enjoy spending uh, time with him. But the other members, uh, Secretary Donna Shalala, uh, former Senator, uh, Senate Majority Leader Tom Daschle, former Congressman Jim Greenwood, and former Homeland Security Advisor Ken Weinstein. And uh, this will not surprise you, but to the extent that the report has any substance, credibility, and vision, it's undoubtedly because Governor Ridge and I had the wisdom to choose as our two top staff members, alumni of this committee, uh, Dr. Uh, Ellen Carlin and Dr. Asha George. And we thank you for the uh, um, preparation that you gave them to take this on. So uh, let me see if I can summarize and just add to what uh, Governor Ridge uh, said. Um, it's about 14 years ago this month that the anthrax attacks on Capitol Hill and elsewhere around the country, including Connecticut, occurred, uh, killing uh, people, including a lady in uh, Connecticut. Uh, obviously, remember that our, our panel member, Senator Daschle, uh, his office was a target of those attacks. A after the attacks, there was a significant um, uh, increase in the federal um, programs uh, that were aimed at dealing with uh, biodefense, the bio threat, both the bioterrorist attacks and, as time went on, clearly the, the comparable threat of infectious disease outbreaks uh, and uh, pandemics. Uh, our panel looked back at what um, we've done, and, uh, and I, I think it's fair to say in summary that we, we saw substantial accomplishment, but really uh, not, uh, not enough was, has been accomplished, particularly based on what we're spending. And when we talk about the absence of leadership and our own recommendation that, uh, uh, that leadership be given to somebody at the rank at the level of the vice president, part of that is uh, because, I'll give you an example, um, it's very hard to find out exactly how much we're spending on biodefense in the federal government. In fact, the most reliable number we got, at least we felt, was not from the federal government, but from the University of Pittsburgh, which has a center on uh, bioterrorism, and it's about $6 billion a year. Um, we don't think we're getting our money's worth effectively out of that, in part because it's not adequately uh, coordinated. So I think Governor Ridge and I and the members of our panel feel that we can accomplish what we're recommending without, without a substantial increase uh, and, and hopefully without any increase in spending. Uh, is, the the, is the threat real? Uh, I think we concluded that the threat of bioterrorism and infectious disease pandemics is not only real, uh, it's growing. And uh, Mr. Chairman, you uh, testified to that in your uh, opening statement. We all dealt with Ebola last year. Uh, the government seemed, uh, uh, certainly to me, uh, unprepared for what came. We were, we were lucky, thank God, that uh, the impact here was uh, so minor, we may not be so fortunate uh, the next time. Um, right now, um, there's a, a, an infectious disease called chikungunya, which is beginning to encroach on Puerto Rico and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and uh, uh, travelers from those places come to the U.S. are bringing it here, and it's beginning to have an impact, and we're not really uh, prepared, I don't think, to, to deal with it. All you gotta do is look at what 
people in ISIS are uh, saying about uh, bioterrorist attack, and it's enough to, when you think about the extent to which ISIS has built its reputation and, and its, um, um, its, its latent state, it's, it's the state that it's declared so quickly, it's based on the willingness to go further than other um, radical Islamist terrorist groups uh, in, in ways they've found to kill people. Um, particularly the beheadings. And I, I worry that uh, bioterrorism uh, and a bioterrorist attack is, is uh, unfortunately almost irresistible to them, and we have to think about that um, possibility as we go on. Um, Governor Ridge talked about uh, the, the main, the last report done, incidentally, on this challenge was done by the so-called Graham Talent Commission seven years ago, and really not enough has happened uh, in response to that. I know you'll have questions about the decisions we made to recommend uh, that the Vice President coordinate this. In some sense, we backed into that recommendation um, because uh, every other alternative we found we thought was not strong enough. Uh, we didn't want to make one department of our government, even Homeland Security, which is the central department responsible for coordinating all the other departments, at least 12 that we, we found in, involved in this. Uh, we thought about uh, recommending that a, an assistant to the president have this responsibility. That's not a bad suggestion, but as Governor Rich said, uh, the, that doesn't have the, the heft and the strength that we were looking for, and so we um, ultimately recommended uh, the vice president. We're glad to answer uh, questions about that. Um, Governor Rich mentioned the One Health approach. I just want to say that one of the things I learned as we uh, did our, our work here was how, uh, one thing I learned is how the definition of the term zoonotic, um, which wasn't uh, something I'd uh, been familiar with uh, enough before, which is the extent to which um, human disease comes from animals um, and um, uh, not enough recognition of that. I mean, one of the uh, stunning findings was that there's no comprehensive standardized sort of national registry or list in real time of outbreak of diseases among animal populations in the country, which uh, comparable to what we have for humans, and therefore we don't have that, that uh, early warning that we could have about what may be next for us. Finally, I just want to uh, touch on the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, Tom Ridge talked about our concerns about the existing BioWatch uh, system, and they are real. I mean, it's, we're operating with old technology and the program is really not doing its job, and uh, we ought to dramatically improve it or sack it and, and figure out a way to do the job better. Very briefly, we, we had other uh, recommendations regarding uh, DHS. We, we believe that the uh, FEMA needs a more prominent seat at the table in discussions about how to remediate uh, communities after a biological uh, disaster. Uh, we also believe that the Office of Intelligence and Analysis has an important role to play in information sharing with fusion centers and our state and local partners about the bioterrorist uh, threats. Uh, and as uh, I believe Governor Ridge mentioned, I'll just touch on it briefly, uh, we concluded that the uh, department's role in providing bioforensic services to federal partners needs to shift and that the forensic laboratory that does this work actually should be in the FBI, should be transferred to the FBI because that is uh, its, um, its major client. Um, this report is, um, uh, it's not wonkish, but it's detailed and substantive and practical. 30 
three uh, blocks of recommendations, uh, almost 100 action items, executive and legislative, in it. Um, but as I said a, a few moments ago, it needs champions here on the Hill. I can tell you that Governor Rich and I and our panel members intend to stay together uh, uh, to be advocates and supporters uh, for anyone in the uh, legislative and executive branches who wants to take our, our report seriously, uh, and not, not necessarily embrace it all, but take parts of it, and uh, uh, we'll be happy to provide any support we can uh, to implement this as we go forward. Thanks, Mr. Chairman. I look forward to your uh, questions. Thank you, Senator. <clears throat> the Chair now recognizes Dr. Cole. Thank you, Chairman McCall, and uh, to you and to Ranking Member Thompson uh, for inviting me to speak on the threat posed by terrorism, and more importantly, for the vital work that you and other committee members are doing to strengthen the security of our country. I feel especially privileged to be sharing a table with former Governor Tom Ridge and former Senator Joe Lieberman, two of our nation's most distinguished public servants. I congratulate them on chairing the bipartisan Blue Ribbon Study Panel, whose excellent new report, A National Blueprint for Biodefense, is of key interest here. As you may know, in previous testimony before some Homeland Security subcommittees, I have referenced a 2012 paper titled WMD Terrorism, Weapons of Mass Destruction, Terrorism. It was produced by the Aspen Institute's Homeland Security Working Group, on which I served. The Aspen paper has emphasized, at some level, uh, what you have been hearing so far from uh, our two previous witnesses, uh, that bioterrorism remains a continuing and serious threat. But a virtue of the new Lieberman Ridge blueprint is that it digs more deeply into numerous biodefense activities, details their flaws, and it lists recommendations for remediation. Many of the policy deficits derive from turf issues, bureaucratic inertia, and the absence of a coherent national strategy. A casual observer might feel overwhelmed by the multiplicity of issues cited in the blueprint which includes, as you heard, about 100 recommendations and subsets of action items. Yet failure to absor absorb the importance of the report's key messages would be a disservice to our national interest. Let me make three essential observations that are drawn from the blueprint, as they have been from a few other previous reports as well. First, the biological threat is real and in a worst-case scenario could be catastrophic. We have to think no farther back than the 20th century to know that in the period of uh, 1918 and 19, a pandemic of what was called Spanish flu killed more than 50 million people and have, estimates have suggested uh, as many as 100 million around the world. It's also true that in the first half of the 20th century, before smallpox was eliminated, an estimated 300 million people in the world were killed or died as a result of smallpox. Second, biodefense activities conducted by scores of government agencies are quite evidently uncoordinated, 
and many are redundant. Talk about saving money. There's an opportunity right there not to duplicate or triplicate, if that's such a word. Third, an individual with full presidential authority should be designated to oversee and coordinate the nation's biosecurity policies and activities. Strengthening biodefense capabilities can also enhance defense against disease outbreaks in general. Travelers from countries with high rates of Ebola currently are screened upon arrival in the United States. After landing at Newark International Airport, a suspected Ebola patient is taken to the University Hospital in Newark and remains in a special containment area for days or weeks under observation. My um, information is that the latest number of Ebola patients, or suspected Ebola patients, none turned out to have actually been infected, numbered about 18 uh, since the Ebola outbreak began in mid-2014. An official from the World Health Organization termed the hospital's response capability, quote, a model for other hospitals. Yet that facility can accommodate no more than one or two patients at a time. In this instance, the medical needs would be the same whether the genesis of the disease was deliberate or not. Either way, a few simultaneous cases could overwhelm the hospital's ability to provide adequate care, and I underscore again, this hospital is unusually well-prepared as considered by the World Health Organization. Well, it also indicates that um, biodefense expenditures to expand the surge capacity for several more victims, to accommodate several more potential victims, could benefit non-defense needs as well. On another important matter for consideration, the Blueprint's top-down emphasis barely addresses the need for education within the general medical community. The field of terror medicine, which includes aspects of disaster and emergency medicine, focuses on the distinctive features of a medical response to a terrorist attack. Yet even years after the 2001 anthrax attacks, many physicians, nurses, and other medical staff feel unprepared to deal with biological or other forms of terrorism. The Rutgers New Jersey Medical School offers a course on terror medicine. The curriculum includes hands-on simulation exercises involving biological and other terror threats. Students and faculty who have participated have been uniformly enthusiastic about the experience. Familiarizing the medical community throughout the country with the essentials of terror medicine would provide a bottom-up approach toward a goal shared with the authors of the blueprint, namely enhancement of the country's biodefense. More education for doctors and others on terror medicine should be encouraged. The co-chairs of the Blue Ribbon Panel indicated their intention to press vigorously for the enactment of the Blueprint's recommendations. I wish them great success. Actually, I wish all of us great success in this. But I also suggest that support from a broad base of informed healthcare providers could augment their efforts. Thank you for your attention to this important matter and I look forward to discussion, questions, and answers. Thank you, Dr. Cole. I now recognize myself for questions. Uh, first, uh, before I get into the recommendations, I really want to kind of highlight the nature of this threat. I, I think it is the, uh, as we saw with the bull eye, um, and it hit my home state of Texas, 
just a handful of cases, but the widespread panic and fear was palpable. Um, and it's the, the enemy that you can't see. I think, and that's what instilled, I think, the terror uh, in Americans. that They couldn't see it, and they didn't know where it was coming from, and they would go on an airplane, and they would uh, be concerned about uh, um, you know, their susceptibility. You know, there's Mother Nature uh, as a threat that evolves, as you mentioned, the pandemics. Um, a SARS airborne strain would be of, of grave concern. But then there's also the, the ability of terrorists to exploit biological weapons and use those against Americans. And I want to just quote from a report and get your comment on, on how realistic this threat possibly could be. But a laptop uh, was recently recovered from an Islamist state jihadist, which contained a hidden trove of secret plans, including weaponizing the bubonic plague. And as this report says, most chilling were files that indicated the computer's owner identified as a Tunisian national joined ISIS in Syria after studying chemistry and physics at two universities in Tunisia, taught himself how to manufacture biological weapons in preparation for a potential attack that could have been catastrophic on a global scale. And then it goes on to say a 19-page document in Arabic included instructions on how to develop biological weapons and how to weaponize the bubonic plague from infected animals. And it says the advantage of biological weapons is they do not cost a lot of money, while the human casualties uh, can be uh, huge. Um, I'd just uh, like for all three of you perhaps to comment on, on that very briefly. Uh, Secretary Ridge. Microphone. I believe one of the reasons that uh, you get a sense of urgency, we're not breathless about this, but there is a sense of urgency, is our assessment uh, that the threat is real. That is just one indication of how serious uh, one sector of our enemies uh, uh, take their capacity building of uh, bioweapons into consideration as part of their arsenal. We also know that there are five or six countries that have uh, signed pledges not to develop uh, these weapons that still have active uh, research capabilities. And on top of that, you're never quite sure what Mother Nature is going to throw at you. But with regard to the terrorism threat, we're foolish if we don't accept the reality that if you, uh, like ISIL, if they control territory, have access to money, uh, plenty of uh, information available on the internet how to do this. Obviously, they've already given some serious thought, may actually be in preparation of trying to weaponize a, any number of pathogens. Then let's say to ourselves, uh, the threat's real, and let's begin educating multiple constituencies. Not that we're going to have to alarm America. We've demonstrated we're, we're resilient, uh, but we also like to know the threats we're confronted with. So some public education around that area. There's other two other constituencies, the healthcare workers and uh, uh, the emergency responders. So uh, the threat's real, and we just need to, uh, it's not as if we're anticipating it. It's out there, and we have to act, not in a reactive way, but this is all about preemption. And, uh, you know, democracies are more inclined to act in, uh, in response to a crisis. Uh, the threat's real. We better act before the crisis occurs. Senator Lieberman. Uh, thanks, Chairman. Uh, the the um, excerpt that you read really is chilling, but it's uh, quite realistic. Frankly, as I look back, it surprises me that we haven't, thank God, uh, experienced a, a bioterrorist attack in this country of any uh, significance since the uh, outbreak of the war ag uh, against Islamist extremism and terrorism. Be uh, because as the Graham Talent Commission said, it, it compared to the other forms of 
uh, weapons of mass destruction, uh, a, a biological weapon is uh, relatively easier to put together, not easy, and of course easier to either transport into the country or do uh, here. And if, if you want a standard of, of the scope of the threat, really it's to go to the infectious diseases that Dr. Cole uh, talked about and the enormous loss of life that has occurred over our history because that can be replicated uh, in a bioterrorist attack. And it's, it's really striking, going back to the word zoonotic, that in the excerpt uh, you, you read, the, the, the plan was to draw the, uh, the disease, if you will, from an animal population and, and, and weaponize it to be used against people. So we're not, this is not an, a, a, a threat that we're, we're creating. This is real, uh, and uh, as, as Tom just said, we better, we better get ahead of it um, before it strikes us and we're running uh, to catch up. And it's pretty clear we're not, we're not ready for the threat now. And Dr. Cole, and before you answer, uh, Dr. Cole, you mentioned smallpox killed 300 million people. Um, that has been eradicated, but not vaccinated currently. Uh, I'm con uh, if there was an outbreak of smallpox today, what kind of position would we find ourselves in? And do we have the capability to, to respond to that? Well, you might remember that on the eve of uh, consideration of sending troops uh, to Iraq, um, there was concern that some terrorists, or perhaps uh, in Iraq itself, there were some capabilities with smallpox in particular. And the president then, President Bush, George W. Bush, um, with the advice of the CDC said, we ought to have a vaccination program revived, including stockpiling. Uh, what happened was that that recommendation of some 10 million uh, inoculees initially, first responders, police, fire, uh, pretty much melted after it was clear that there was no smallpox threat at that time. But there still has been, fortunately in my opinion, and I believe everybody would agree, a buildup and stockpiling of more <coughs> smallpox vaccine. And as one <coughs> colleague of mine said, you know, all we need is a case of smallpox, one case, anywhere in the world, and we will all really be on the edge of concern and probably start some active vaccination program. So the short answer is we're in better shape now than we were uh, 15 years ago. Um, how it would play out and how quickly we'd be able to vaccinate people is another question. Uh, I would just say, if I may steal a little time here in response to some of the concerns uh, that we've made, heard, particularly from Senator Lieberman, uh, his wonder about why we haven't had a bio attack until now. Well, first of all, it hasn't been for lack of effort. Al-Qaeda had la uh, actually laboratories working on developing anthrax as a weapon. When you deal with biological agents, even of the same genus or strain, uh, like anthrax, where there are probably a thousand <coughs> variations, some are virulent, some will kill, some are not. So there's um, more of a variation in the kind of um, material in a, in a biological arsenal, potentially, um, and it is not certain to kill. When you release bio agents into the air, 
a lot of variables take place. Wind, sun, ultraviolet light can kill them. On the other hand, we do know the potential, as the um, old saying goes through, uh, we've heard over and over again, we have to be right every time in our defense and prevention of terrorism. The terrorists have to be right only once. You can say the same thing as an analogy with bioterrorism. Maybe 99 times the effort will fail in an enemy's laboratory, an adversary's laboratory. But all you need is one success uh, to create a major, major problem. And, and I agree with that. I, in the limited time I have, I, I want to touch on the recommendation, Secretary Ridge and Senator. Um, I, I agree. Uh, we asked the question, who's in charge when uh, Ebola was breaking out? And the answer was, we don't really know. I think uh, the White House has to have a unified uh, effort, whether that be an assistant secretary or at the vice presidential level. I think those are strong recommendations. Within this committee's jurisdiction, we are um, uh, proposing a um, streamlined and elevated um, WMD functions into a unified office within the Department of Homeland Security. And this is sort of the organizational chart that we're looking at based upon um, uh, the recommendations of this report. And I just want to give the two of you time to comment on that. Well, first of all, I think uh, uh, I will defer to this committee as a partner in the evolution of DHS and uh, to Secretary Johnson. I'm not about to uh, uh, move uh, portions of his uh, infrastructure around, and I'll let the two of you work it out. Uh, I do think, however, that uh, the, in spite of that reorganization, which may, because there's probably overlapping jurisdictions, and it's not about cost savings, it might give it a, a more specific focus on uh, uh, the WMD, and I think that's what you're trying to do. DHS will still be one of multiple agencies dealing with the bio threat and the biodefense. So, let us assume that uh, the reorganization effort is successful because of the collaboration between the executive and the legislative branch. I hope it is. You still have the same situation. You may have a more, the focus may be better inside DHS, but you still have that broad uh, spectrum of multiple agencies, each doing their own thing, setting their own priorities uh, without uh, it being consistent with an overall uh, strategy and without, being without it being consistent with priorities set, not by individual departments and agencies, but by the President and the Vice President of the United States. Yeah, good, good point. Senator. So, so I, w I would say from what I know of the proposal the committee is making that it's a step in the right direction yeah. uh, because it's a step to coordination. But of course, I agree with what Governor Ridge has said that we also need that same kind of overarching uh, co uh, cooperation, collaboration, and leadership at a government-wide level, and that's why we recommended the Vice President. That's good. And let me just close by saying we, we've had very productive discussions with Secretary Johnson on this proposal. Yeah, good. Um, and as with most reorganizations, we obviously want his buy-in on what we're doing here and, and collaboration. And uh, so far, it's, it's moved uh, uh, very well. So, I mean, I agree with you with the overarching federal, all the federal agencies working on this need to collaborate, and it has to be under a who's in charge in the White House. Yes, sir. If I, if I might yes, just sir. add, that's precisely the reason that some of us, and I'll just speak for as the first Secretary of Homeland Security, would like to see uh, this committee have, I know it's tough for committee chairman and subcommittee chairman and your colleagues to give up jurisdiction, 
but it would be certainly nice if this committee had uh, more complete jurisdiction and, and really develop the kind of relationship that apparently you have developed with Secretary Johnson saying, we need to collaborate, we need to be on the same page to make this a more effective uh, uh, enterprise. And so I commend you for that effort. Well, I certainly agree with that. Uh, Mr. Chair Chairman, I, I just want to uh, uh, say the same. I, uh, Senator Collins and I, uh, who led the effort on the 9-11 Commission report, um, thanks to a lot of support across the aisle, both in the Senate and working with the House, we really adopted uh, most of the report recommendations. We, we were really quite uh, successful at reforming the executive branch. It was when we got to the legislative branch that we had our problems. And um, I admire you for wanting to charge the uh, uh, fortress again, but, but it's uh, critically important to do that. I, I shouldn't use this parallel, but I always felt that a lot of the other committees that were calling on people like Secretary Rich to testify we're in some sense visiting the subject matter. The House Homeland Security Committee, the Senate Committee on Homeland Security, I mean, we live with it uh, every day, and this is where the focus should be. We look forward to working with you on that uh, effort. Chair recognizes a ranking member. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, the testimony has indeed been very good. Uh, Governor Ridge, you and Senator Lieberman, uh, you've talked about putting somebody in charge. And while it's, I think that the vice president is a, almost as high as you can go in terms of putting somebody in charge, but the practical reality of oversight by this committee is, can you envision the congressional oversight on biodefense and because uh, the likelihood of a vice president coming testifying would, 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 would not be, well, it would be nice, but I, I've yet to see it. So tell us your thinking on that, if you would. Well, I appreciate that, uh, uh, Congressman. Uh, uh, first of all, um, the other day I counted the uh, number of public paychecks I've received over my life from seven different jurisdictions at one time or another. So if you looked at my resume, I can't hold a job. But three of the most important was uh, sitting up proudly as a member of the People's House, as governor of the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, assistant to the president, and then cabinet secretary. And all those experiences, particularly the two in the White House, uh, suggested to me uh, that in spite of the well-intentioned efforts of uh, congressmen and senators and think tanks and department heads, uh, you need a unified effort, a cohesive effort. And I also concluded, based on my experience in the White House, that the only way you really affect change, and I think you'll all appreciate this, is if you have control over budgets. And uh, unless, uh, and that's why we want to give the president the budget authority, the, the, the uh, pre vice president oversight budget authority, and I, th I think the executive branch is, uh, answers uh, the call of oversight in many different ways. And I think in this instance, perhaps you'd use the, the uh, director of science and technology, and more importantly, maybe the director of OMB could be talking about the priorities. Remember, there's going to be a comprehensive plan, hopefully with the input of the Congress of the United States and other, other people involved in the, uh, the development of the infrastructure. So I think you can, the Congress can effectively, effectively uh, uh, meet its uh, constitutional responsibilities or oversight 
because you'll still have, based under that plan, department heads, agency heads, and uh, OMB answerable to you. Uh, and that's why making it, it's, it's the oversight over a comprehensive plan rather than individual departments and agencies that we think is so critical. That still means that you're going to have uh, plenty of the committee hearings and a lot of the cabinet secretaries and undersecretaries appearing before you. But from the vice president's point of view, you might have the Office of Management and Budget up here explaining why different funding streams are going to different departments and agencies. Are you, Senator Lima? Uh, thanks, Mr. Thompson. Look, you make a good point. Um, this was, uh, I think maybe when you were out of the room briefly, I said we, in some sense, we backed into the proposal about the vice president being the lead uh, for the federal government because all the alternatives that we considered didn't seem strong enough. And so you're absolutely right. We try to get about as close to the president as you could get in terms of the strength of, of the uh, leadership and uh, uh, the ability to coordinate. Uh, no question you would not uh, get the vice president up here testifying uh, any more than you get the president up here regularly to uh, testify. Um, but on balance, we felt that you still have the people under the vice president who would be subject to your oversight. And the, the, the plus, pluses associated with that central leadership in the office of the vice president outweighed that um, uh, obvious uh, problem with the proposal. Well said. Uh, thank you much. Dr. Cole, um, as you know, we have challenges uh, within the health community. Can you uh, talk about the funding challenges that you see hospitals and medical schools uh, uh, preparing students and staff to identify and respond to a biological event? That's a great question. What we need to see is more of a culture change, then funding becomes uh, more amenable. Um, I had a conversation uh, with the uh, a dean of a medical school uh, a few years ago. Uh, and um, he said, so who should we cut in order to pay for more exercises and drills? $50,000, $80,000 a year. Should we cut a dietitian from our current needs and our current staff? So you face the inevitable issue of uh, the limited funding resources and where the money is going to go. If through the great efforts that we've just been hearing about, there becomes more of a consciousness about this, including suggestions that I make relative to terror medicine being taught, um, there becomes a greater sensitivity. Uh, in my written remarks toward the end, the very last item, uh, there is a series of quotations from various students who've taken the course on terror medicine. And they are amazingly consistent in their recognition. These are fourth-year students. They've been through most of their formal education that, at that level. Uh, they say, wow, this was a great course, this, not so much because of instruction as, as much of because of content. It is not permeated through uh, the medical school curricula in many places. Certainly, it's been fairly successful at Rutgers in Newark, uh, but that's not representative of the larger community. So, so you say it's, we need to get the schools to start changing how they look at the whole area about medical defense or? Yes, I, I would say that a good start would be, uh, or I shouldn't say a start only in this one area, but among your starts, 
go to the medical community, go to the AMA and other reputable organizations that represent physicians, remind them of the issues. Presumably they've all been informed about it in some fashion in the past, but as you heard, there have been several good reports that have come out that uh, lie on shelves still without action. You create the culture of awareness, and then I think what would follow would be a pressure from below up toward the government as opposed to the government telling them what to be doing. Thank you. Yield back. I recognize Mr. King. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you for holding this hearing. I want to, uh, again, welcome uh, Secretary Ridge and Senator Lieberman. I had the privilege of working, uh, serving with uh, Tom Ridge in the House of Representatives when I first came here. Did an outstanding job and saw firsthand the job that you did setting up the Department of Homeland Security, which really was being present at the creation because no one really knew what direction it was going to take, how it could be done, and somehow you put it together. So I really commend you for that and for your service. And Senator Lieberman, of course, uh, you and I have been friends for years. I admire the great work you've done in many ways. And also when you're talking about people having egos and committee chairman wanting to stand on ceremony, uh, maybe it's a small thing, but I uh, remember when I was chairman of the committee and we held a joint hearing on radicalization in the military, and you actually agreed to have the Senate committee come over to the House side of the Capitol Visitor Center, which I think was almost unprecedented to have you guys actually come <laughs> over to the House side. Thank you. Thank you for remembering that. <laughs> I came where the leadership was, in you. <laughs> Thank you, Senator. Uh, also, I have to commend you for having the good wisdom to hire Dr. Collin. She served with, uh, for me when I was chairman of the committee. My only criticism of her was she caused me many sleepless nights when she would come in with all these scenarios about how we could be dead before the next day, and <laughs> I was afraid that one night she was going to be right. So, but Ellen, it's great to see you back here today. Uh, I'll just have a few quick questions. One. Uh, uh, Ranking Member Thompson mentioned the fact that we have legislation that has not moved. One we were lucky on was uh, Congressman Pasquale and I had a bill to provide uh, uh, anthrax uh, vaccines to first responders. That did pass the House, and your old friend Senator Ayotte has it right now in the Senate, and hopefully it can move there. If you could just put in the record why it's important that first responders do have access to vaccines in cases of uh, attacks such as the ones we're talking about. Uh, th thanks, uh, um, Mr. King, Congressman King. So uh, it's you know it's because uh, uh, they're going to be the ones that have to respond first. I mean I can't think of anything more creative, and and uh, they we owe it uh, to them to have access to the vaccine. We we want them to go. go uh, we know by their training and by their uh, reflex they're going to go to what uh, others would shy away from, which is danger, because that's their responsibility. So we we want them to feel that. Uh, uh, they've got a vaccine and they're protected. And uh, um, I, I strongly support your proposal, Senator Ayotte. I think, we're, along with Senator Booker, I have a similar proposal. Uh, this is also uh, not only uh, um, sort of preemptive in terms of uh, creating this level of confidence among our first responders, but it's uh, sensible because, as you know, um, the, uh, uh, the the viability of, of some of the anthrax vaccine in our stocks is is going to run out, and uh, it'll it'll be useless. And now we have an opportunity to use it in the most constructive way. So I hope the legislation moves quickly. Dr. Cole, you have any thoughts on that? Is there any? Oh, I'm sorry, Tom. Do you want to, Secretary Rich? I think you're onto something. About first responders run to danger, and if we can immunize them to the danger that they're running to. Uh, that's uh, that's the right thing to do. It's good policy. 
Dr. Cole, do you have any thoughts? Is there any downside to this? Do we run any risk by having the vaccines available? Is there any? No, we certainly don't have any downside. All our military, especially those who are headed for the Middle East, are, are automatically required to get anthrax vaccines. Right. By the way, I should say that uh, you chaired one of the committees, subcommittees at which I testified. Right. <clears throat> I appreciated your questions and your leadership then, and I still do now. Thank you, Doctor. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, we know that ISIS has used mustard gas on several occasions. We know the large numbers of uh, foreign fighters who have gone from Europe to Syria to fight. Uh, many of them will be going back. Uh, is there any way we can protect ourselves uh, in a greater way from the threat of uh, mustard gas or other biological uh, agents coming to the U.S. from these foreign fighters or from other sources in the Middle East? Tom, John, actually, any of the three you want to jump in? You know, uh, Tom, use the mic there, please. You're forgetting. All right. This whole refugee problem uh, creates uh, potential unintended uh, consequences uh, for the broader community, that those leaving uh, Syria and Iraq in the face of uh, ISIS and the notion that some sympathizers or actual members may be among that group. <clears throat> I think there is a risk attendant to it. I don't think there's any question about that. I also think that, uh, this is Tom Ridge's opinion, the world has ignored the reality of what's going on in Syria with the extermination of 250,000 uh, Syrians and the mass exodus of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And uh, we still have not done anything about the actual cause of the problem, and we're obviously not going to get around to that for a while. So I think <coughs> we're going to have to. Ex <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> I think we're going to have to uh, accept the, some of the risk, uh, and hopefully there'll be some kind of screening uh, device that uh, we screening protocol that we could come up with uh, before they enter the country, just as we did with the people traveling in from uh, those countries that were affected by Ebola. It's a, it's, a, it's a thorny problem, and I don't have the best answer to it, but I do think that uh, we just have to accept a certain amount of risk and hopefully under a protocol that would allow admission of some. Uh, Congressman King, you asked uh, really a big question, which is how do we act to prevent uh, terrorists from uh, carrying out a bioterrorist attack here? And Really, it goes to, to all the elements of the war on terrorism. I mean, again, I, I worry that ISIS has uh, uh, so rapidly built this um, state that, it, that it's created by, by um, going beyond what previous terrorist groups did. I mean, being more inhumane, more, and uh, therefore I, I would think that uh, a bioterrorist attack would be something that, and we know this from what the chairman read, something they want to carry out. So it requires everything we're, that, that we've talked about. We've got to, I mean, this is the classic, uh, if we, 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 we should fight them there instead of here. In other words, we should do everything we can to, to eliminate this nascent state that they've created in parts of Iraq and Syria. It requires an, an enormous commitment in terms of uh, intelligence. Uh, they are drawing on a, a more uh, an intelligent, in a different sense, a population that may come uh, to their ranks with some specialized experience in uh, biology that will uh, help them to gain this capacity. Uh, all that we do to try to keep people um, out of this country who shouldn't, who, who are coming in for uh, uh, 
nefarious terrorist uh, purposes. And, and then the, the, the enormous challenge of how do you stop a lone wolf or a small group of people who are already inside America from uh, developing this capacity. And re it requires everything that all the DHS, FBI, intelligence community, et cetera, are doing. So uh, the, the, the bottom line that I think our panel came away with with a sense of urgency is that the threat of a bioterrorist attack is real. And um, the need to do, to, to up our fight uh, here and our capacity to prevent, uh, let alone respond, but to prevent is, uh, is urgent. Dr. Cole. Well, I certainly agree with uh, both uh, Governor Ridge and Senator Lieberman's comments. I would only add that I have no personal information about what I'm going to say, except that David Cameron, the Prime Minister of the UK, recently said that his counterterrorism expert, presumably it's uh, MI5, said that they estimate that two out of every 100 of these refugees probably have a relationship, a past relationship, I hope, but maybe a current one, to Al-Qaeda or another kind of terrorist group. That's a phenomenal number. You're talking then, if that's even near truth, of thousands of these people coming in with nefarious backgrounds. And I'm not sure how well the screening would go, and I don't know the basis uh, on which uh, those estimates were made, but it's worthy of at least uh, considering. Thank you, Doctor. Thank you, Senator. Thank you, Governor. Thank you. The chair recognizes Mr. Longevin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I want to thank uh, our panel today. Uh, particularly, it's great to see you again, uh, Secretary Ridge and Senator Lieberman. Uh, I appreciate uh, your extraordinary work on this and your commitment uh, to the country and um, all that you've done in public service. We're grateful for that. And welcome to you also, Dr. Cole. And thank you for your service as well. Um, so I, as you know, have spent many years on this subject uh, as a founding member uh, of this the Homeland Security Committee and, and uh, also having the privilege of, of chair the subcommittee on emerging threats uh, that looked at it, did a deep dive on things like um, uh, bio threats and, and pandemic influenza. Influenza, I, I, I want to recognize also and thank uh, your two staffers who helped to prepare this report. Uh, Asha George, who served as my staffer when I chaired the subcommittee, and uh, Ellen Carlin as well. I, I thank them both for their, their extraordinary work and commitment to this issue. Um, th this issue really hit home for me when, uh, on an informal conversation I had with a former high-ranking uh, official from the Pentagon, and I was asking him to quantify, you know, how much of we talking about this, uh, say, a biological agent? How much of it would it take? Are you talking about tanker trucks full of it that, to have, uh, you know, a, a widespread impact, uh, or is it something smaller than that? And, you know, without question, you know, hesitation or very uh, much thought, he said, no, it wouldn't take much at all. In fact, to quantify it using a certain type of biological agent, which I won't mention, um, uh, weaponized and aerosolized uh, in something the size of a fire extinguisher sprayed from the top of a tall building, it would create a plume of about 50 miles wide, 100 miles long, untreated, there would be a 90% death rate. So that's riveting and, and terrifying in, in many respects, and I, I hope we can redouble our efforts to get this, to get this right to try to prevent or be prepared uh, and protected against such a, such a threat. 
because it was is a, it is great concern. So, um, Senator Lieberman and Secretary Ridge, I, I, I share my colleagues' concerns about coordination being a top uh, concern, uh, one that is, of course, highlighted as the, the first recommendation of the blueprint. Um, in the narrative, you discuss the existing office of the U.S. Coordinator for Prevention of, of Weapons of Mass Destruction, Proliferation, and Terrorism created under the 9-11 the Act, and you point uh, out that Congress, and I quote, has not forced the issue of ensuring any president filled this position. And we certainly have ways that we could apply pressure and fencing off funds and, and such to really push this harder. Is this a problem with the construct of the office or with Congress? And uh, could an empowered Senate-confirmed official within the executive office of the president provide the needed coordination? Well, um, we, we looked at that. We don't think it's, it's not clearly our first choice. That's why we ended up recommending the vice president. But, it, but if, you, if that office was filled, um, it, we'd at least find out whether it could do the job. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's a respectable alternative. And I, I don't think it has to be mutually exclusive, right? I mean, we could do both. Certainly, could the vice do both. president. As, as we all know, the vice president is going to have many things on his plate. Right. And so to have an additional individual who is solely responsible as well and focused on this and, and works hand-in-hand -hand with the vice president. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very good point, um, uh, Mr. Langevin, that, that um, this person, if we fill that uh, position with some uh, pressure from Congress, could obviously essentially work under the vice president. And incidentally, going back to Mr. Thompson's concern, would be um, uh, subject to the oversight of Congress. Right. Um, so to the, uh, the, the panel, uh, last uh, week the FDA approved the first uh, viral-based cancer therapy, a re-engineered herpes uh, simplex virus uh, can now be used to target specific melanoma cells while uh, leaving uh, healthy cells, uh, healthy uh, tissues unharmed. Well, this advance shows great promise for medicine. Uh, what does progress in synthetic biology mean for our uh, future biodefense? Uh, when, as pointed out in the blueprint, uh, the capabilities required to produce pathogens de novo have become increasingly available. Uh, will uh, existing defense uh, techniques based on a single pathogen, say anthrax, become obsolete? And how do we prepare for this eventuality? Not quite sure. Uh, uh, first of all, Congressman, before I try to respond to that, and I mean try feebly to respond to that very technical question, <clears throat> let me uh, say that uh, prior to uh, Appearing before you today, I read the report that uh, you and then Chairman Thompson uh, issued back in 2009 with regard to pandemics. And there's a long list of concerns <clears throat> that you raised uh, nearly six years ago. And uh, unfortunately, six years later, we issued this blue ribbon report, and it probably sounds like an echo in some of the areas of the concerns that you expressed. So we are grateful for the continuing commitment of this committee to do something different, profoundly different than has been done before. Uh, I don't have the technical capability to respond to that question. I do know, however, that during the course of our uh, hearings, and uh, not only in Washington, but in around the country, uh, the notion of uh, research into uh, synthetic antibiotics as being a 21st century platform to deal with um, the, the, the threat of existing and future pathogen was something very much 
that both uh, the academics as well as the uh, researchers feel is, has enormous potential. Uh, it's one of the reasons we suggested that as we're looking at how we use these dollars in the future, uh, that we engage the research community as well as the private sector to advance this notion as aggressively as we possibly can. <clears throat> Dr. Cole, did you have any comment on this? Well, if I might, if I may slightly veer from this, what a comment that you made before about how much, what quantity of biological agent would be required. Uh, we've lived the experience here, which I hope is a lesson uh, regarding the anthrax letters. Less than a teaspoon of anthrax spores powder were in as many as six or seven letters. We never quite recovered all of them. We did recover four, and therefore we know almost for sure what would have been in the other couple. That's a total quantity that would uh, allow you to place all of it in your hand and still have room for more. That experience, as you will recall, tore up the East Coast with worry, concern. Yes, as we say, only 22 people became infected, but five of them died. Had this powder, had this anthrax uh, not been uh, subject to uh, uh, the capabilities of uh, an effective antibiotic to save some lives, in other words, had the strain been developed and antibiotic resistant, we could have expected many, many more deaths. Furthermore, there were more than 30,000 required prophylactic treatments to people who presumably had been exposed. So just from a handful of letters, if you have more than 30,000 people exposed and you then have the real witch's brew of an effective organism that can't be treated readily, you can imagine the horrible results, and that's based on our own experience. Yeah. Yeah. And if I might or, add, Congress, and it wasn't a contagion. I mean, just think about this. If, if anthrax, if the condition was contagious and could be passed on from individual to individual, God only knows how many people would have been affected or infected by the five people that ultimately died and the multiple, the dozens that were infected, but fortunately uh, there was an antibody that we could deal with it. Yeah. All important points, and um, thank you for making Mr. That Chairman, statement. if I can say briefly, maybe we'll come back to it. I mean, one of the um, areas that we focused on was the, the whole problem of medical countermeasures here, uh, both vaccines and um, uh, therapeutics. Um, and the, the problem being that in so many ways we're, because there's an incredible advances, as, as you said, Mr. Orangeman, in your uh, opening statement about this question, in uh, pharmaceutical science. And yet, uh, there's not an obvious market here. The market doesn't function um, as, as it normally would because, whereas you talked about a cancer drug, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, we don't know whether there's gonna be a, an anthrax attack or a, a, a pandemic of one kind or another. So we've tried through BARDA to incentivize uh, pharmaceutical companies to get involved. Well, I think, I'd say for myself, I think we felt BARDA's doing a pretty good job uh, at, at doing that, but we still haven't really figured out a way, and it's, it's a real shortcoming to create, uh, through some government involvement, incentives for uh, uh, the, the great pharmaceutical sector of our economy to devote some of its enormous research capability to these real problems. So we're gonna be, God forbid, there's a, a contagious 
attack, an attack of a contagious agent or a pandemic. Uh, we're we're going to be just running around uh, crazily to come up with a therapeutic to deal with it. Better that we do it beforehand, of course. Good point. I thank hope you. we can get out ahead of it. Sure sure recognizes thank Mr. You. Duncan. I want to thank the chairman. Um, I'm sporting a beard for No Shave November in uh, support of P Prostate and Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. And I would ask everyone to consider supporting that as well. Does that mean I have to grow a beard as yeah. well? Well, I'm... Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not alone. There you go. I, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for the report. I think uh, you taking uh, an opportunity to do that outside of the, the normal channels was, uh, was important. I want to also encourage you to think about the next opportunity to do something would be with the threat of EMPs. Uh, hardening our grid is important, whether it's man-made um, um, electromagnetic pulse uh, created through a nuclear weapon or whether it's naturally occurring. Uh, our grid is unsecure and it could be detrimental to the country. As part of the MP caucus, I would encourage uh, you guys to look into that. I want to shift into um, the issue with a border. I noticed in the report we don't talk about our unsecured border. We're witnessing right now huge migrations across Europe where they have open borders and the countries are having to deal with it. We saw in the U.S. a huge migration of unaccompanied children. So migration patterns um, can shift and we can see um, folks come into the U.S. across our, our unsecured border. With them, they could bring infectious diseases. With them, they could bring biological devices. And with them, they could bring radiological devices. If they're able to bring drugs and they're able to, to come across undetected and enter our country, we don't know who's here and we don't know what they have brought or could bring with them. So as former Secretary of the Homeland Security and former Senator, how would you address our unsecured southern border with regard to biological weapons and national defense? Mr. Secretary. Well, first of all, I think uh, Congress and uh, this administration have uh, really focused on uh, deploying more people and more technology, which I believe was uh, long overdue. I remember way back when in 2002 and three, when we started the department, uh, the number of uh, border agents we had there and the kind of technology we deployed down there, and there's been a significant and very positive uh, change in that regard. Uh, you may be uh, probably talking to the wrong person. I, I happen to believe that uh, until we uh, move down multiple paths and come up with a comprehensive uh, immigration platform dealing with uh, legal ingress and egress in and out of this country as well as securing the border. We're still going to be talking about this five or ten years from now. I think the, uh, the capabilities that we have, uh, I've often wondered whether or not uh, we are deploying the best technology available uh, down there. I'm going to leave that to you to make that determination. Obviously, it's very, very important to, to you. I think we have plenty of manpower down there, but uh, I'm not sure we have the uh, quite the kind of uh, arrangement or agreement or collaboration with our friends in Mexico uh, to help us deal with that issue. And uh, I'm always interested in uh, adapting more uh, technology uh, in the use of drones as well as a uh, tactical response to uh, the kind of situational awareness that senses give us when people are trying to penetrate the border. So one of these days I'm going to learn to hit that says talk and it's not red, I'm going to hit it so you can hear me. But hopefully <laughs> I spoke loud enough so you could get uh, my view. With regard specifically to the border, 
I think we need to continue to do everything we possibly can to make sure that the law is enforced. And that doesn't necessarily, in my judgment, mean more bodies, but it may need more and better technology and certainly far more cooperation from the Mexican government to assist us. Right. I, I would ask you, you know, we, we're seeing the use of drones um, to deliver drugs across the border, very undetectable. I mean, heck, we couldn't even detect a gyrocopter coming into the nation's uh, capital airspace. So if someone wanted to deliver a biological weapon uh, into this country, it'd be fairly easy um, if we can't detect them bringing drugs in. So I think there's a lot of different things to consider when you talk to border security. Well, I think you're absolutely right, uh, Congressman. I think uh, uh, the reality is, I think, given the forces uh, and the nature of globalization, you could potentially have an individual infected by a contagious disease coming in lawfully through New York City. And uh, given the nature of the infection, we wouldn't know about it until uh, it emerged either in that individual and, and symptoms around that individual. That's why whether it's the border and you're dealing with uh, illegals or it's those who are traveling in and out of the United States uh, lawfully, we need to be preemptive in anticipation that uh, one or the other or both might occur and we're not prepared for, uh, for that pathogen in our midst. And that's why, uh, you know, uh, it's really a defensive preemptive uh, approach we are asking uh, this committee and the Congress and the President to take because they, that penetration through the border or just somebody passing through our gateways, uh, you know, past the uh, Statue of Liberty could bring in a pathogen that could be infectious and uh, potentially cause us enormous problems. So I think the concern, whether it's the border or elsewhere, is legitimate. Yeah. We, we've been very successful in knocking back a lot of these uh, diseases that uh, are now starting to, to come back on the scene. Do you think Europe's prepared for what they may see uh, with this mass migration? These, these folks aren't screened coming in, into, the, into Europe. And there's a possibility with uh, Schengen and with open borders and, and with um, visa waiver down the road that those folks may end up in this country uh, through normal travel patterns. And... Uh, so I just asked both of you, do you think Europe's prepared, and uh, is there a possibility for infectious diseases to come in that way? I don't think the uh, broader global community is prepared for the magnitude of infectious diseases. Uh, we are ill-prepared to respond to those of which we were familiar. Uh, Congressman, when I took over, when I, the president asked me to come into the White House, I was given a list of pathogens uh, that uh, we were as a country concerned about at that time, and it was Ebola was one, on the list. Now, that's 2001. Fast forward to 2014, and you can draw your own conclusions as to whether or not having evidenced a legitimate concern uh, regarding this pathogen, uh, whether or not 13 or 14 years was sufficient time for, the, for all the parties, interested parties, to take effective deterrent action and be prepared in case there was a, an outbreak of Ebola. So I don't think uh, the World Health, World Health Organization is as prepared. I mean, we're gonna, we encourage us to be, provide leadership uh, as we engage uh, uh, in, that, in that organization. And there's some other recommendations that we make with regard to strong, positive American leadership in, among international organizations because we don't believe generally, and I'm going to defer to Dr. Cole on this, that the world writ large is really well prepared to deal with a major pandemic. Right. Yeah, th that's Senator? our uh, actually 33rd last uh, recommendation that uh, 
after everything we're, we recommend that we try to do here at home to deal with the bio threat, that we, we need a, uh, we really need to assume an, an international leadership role, perhaps through the World Health Organization, but really probably on our, on our own to coordinate um, with um, with other nations around the world. Because forget uh, for a moment. Uh, refugee flows. People are just moving around so much more than they ever have because of the ease of travel and they're carrying uh, contagious diseases with them. I mean, I remember reading a book a while back about the impact of the uh, uh, Spanish movement, uh, the movement from the Iberian Peninsula to uh, um, what we now call Latin America and the devastating effect it had on the indigenous populations, because they had no resistance to and the- And the Native Americans in this country uh, yeah. impacted by Europeans. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So honestly, to answer your question, is Europe ready uh, for the uh, massive refugee flow that's occurring now? I think it's, it, it, even though Europe has a, uh, obviously a very well-developed public health system and all the rest, the answer has got to be no, they're not ready. And uh, it's, it's uh, among the various um, urgent responses to this totally unexpected, massive refugee flow, which is not stopping. I, I saw something last week that an average of 9,000 people landed in Greece every day last week. Right. I mean, the scope of it. So it, it's going to, and some of them will end up coming here. We've got to be ready to uh, to deal with that reality and, and, and make sure that they don't bring disease with them. Well, thank you very much. I'm out of time, but we're seeing a, a changing world, Mr. Chairman. That's why this hearing is so important. I yield back. Thank you. Chair recognizes Mr. Higgins. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, on page six of your testimony, uh, you indicate that the biological threat is already out there, that it's too late to get ahead of it, but we can still reduce our vulnerabilities and get ahead of its impact. Is this based on known specific biological threat, or is it the capacity to produce a weapon without detection? Uh, I, I'm going to start the answer. That's a good one, I and mean, I'll read from it. The biological threat is already out there. It's too late to get ahead of it, which I think means to stop it. Uh, but um, but we can still reduce our vulnerabilities and, and get ahead of its impact. And I, my answer is that both of the uh, possible explanations for that conclusion are, are correct. I mean, uh, that, that's why it's so real and, and so threatening. Both of those that you gave. I, mean, one of the, I think one of the challenges uh, will ultimately be attribution if, one of the challenges will ultimately be attribution if we are ever confronted by a intentionally introduced uh, pathogen. We know that uh, countries such as Russia and China and Syria and Iran and North Korea maintain uh, R&D centers for both offensive and defensive capabilities around uh, uh, biological uh, challenges. And uh, so, so we know that that exists. We also know that there's a predisposition within terrorist community. I think Dr. Cole referred to uh, Al-Qaeda experimenting with animals with anthrax. It was clearly they had laboratories doing it. I sold uh, a laptop uh, recently uh, collected uh, 
indicated that uh, ISIL has uh, both uh, has certainly the intent, and if you control territory and you've got access to information, you've got money to buy the science. So it's uh, the threat is real, and we don't uh, we want to be breathless about it. We have to, have to accept the reality that it is it it exists today, and we have to be preemptive in preparing. As the 9/11 Commission report suggested, what the country lacked pre-9/11 was a failure of imagination. It's not difficult to imagine, given the globalization of uh, travel and people in the chaotic world, that uh, a pathogen willfully introduced by someone or or by Mother Nature could have a dramatic effect on all of us. I think it's important to uh, break this down in the following way. None in, in none of our lifetimes or our grandchildren's lifetimes will infectious disease be entirely eliminated. And as long as there are agents that can cause disease and cause fatality, there will be some who would want to use that capability for bad reasons. What our goal should be, as opposed to eliminating which is impossible to do, this whole notion of infectious disease, whether natural or even man-made, is to disincentivize those who would want to use these materials for unsavory events. And we have that capability to at least, by showing preventive capabilities, um, discourage a terrorist from wanting to use this weapon only because it would be a waste of time if there is enough uh, evidence and enough protection preventive measures in place. So I think that's a good argument for, another good argument for the recommendations because of the overlap, the unusual overlap that you take care of a, the uh, terrorist possibility and the reasons that they would be doing it. You're also helping to uh, prevent disease in general, which is a good thing. So absent uh, vice presidential uh, leadership in this regard that is called for by your committee. Uh, of the 12 federal agencies that are involved in the biodefense field, what is the most, you know, what is the most logical agency leadership there? Is it CDC, is it? Well, um, apart from the uh, reference before to this unfilled position of a coordinator, um, to me, and I'm biased, <laughs> but I'm, I'm together with a, a co-chair who shares my bias, it seems to me we have a Department of Homeland Security. This is a, the bioterrorist threat is a Homeland Security threat. And um, uh, as you know, DHS has been uh, uh, organized and reorganized to uh, respond to um, uh, disasters, including the critical role that FEMA plays. So uh, I would say that if, if it fell back to, uh, again, we have our list of first choices for this, but I'd say it would be the Department of Homeland Security. I mean, one thing that was lacking last year, I just want to say it briefly, my reaction, I think it was broadly felt, there didn't seem, it wasn't clear who was in charge in response to the Ebola uh, panic and, and outbreak. And, and actually some of the, uh, the statements made by the people at CDC, it seemed a bit odd, actually. I, I felt like <laughs> there wasn't, it didn't instill confidence, I guess I'd put it that way. So it needs, we, we need to, I, I, I think we are better prepared now as a result of that unfortunate circumstance from which we came out remarkably well, fortunately, but to, to uh, create that central leadership. And I, I think DHS is the natural place. Okay. All right. 
I yield back. Now, Mr. Barlett is recognized. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, Governor, Senator, Dr. Cole, thank you for your work. Uh, Governor, I noticed that you uh, provided a list of potential oversight hearings for Congress to take up. Uh, this includes suggestions for the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. Uh, I'm chairman of the Subcommittee on Economic Development, Public Buildings, and Emergency Management, which has jurisdiction over FEMA and the federal management of emergencies and natural disasters. Uh, FEMA is responsible for the national uh, response framework, which provides how the national incident management system is intended to be used in response to disasters and emergencies, regardless of cause. Now, FEMA is the federal government's crisis management as manager, as you know, which is why, for example, the president put FEMA in charge of coordinating federal resources and assistance during the Ebola response. So I think your points on biosecurity and cybersecurity are very important, as the federal government will likely have to deal with the consequences of any bio or cyber attack. Can you expand on this more for us? What are we facing in terms of the potential hacking of lethal viral virus information, and why is this so important? And what would the consequences be if individuals, groups, or countries which clearly don't share our values and have uh, malicious intents, we're able to get into some of these databases. We very much appreciate uh, the question. I, for one, believe. I, for one, believe that. Uh, thank you. Third time's the charm. <laughs> no, the fourth time is a charm. Perhaps <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> uh, there, there are five theaters of war, air, land, sea, space, and there's a fifth theater going on right now, and it's cyber. And I don't think we should be under any illusion that it's uh, going on 24 hours a day, every day of the year. We know who the actors are. Uh, we know their motivations, and we know the outcomes that they would like to achieve. With the emergence of uh, the terrorism threat and the ability of uh, certain elements to uh, actually control territory, buildings, build cyber capacity. I mean, let's not forget that it was the Syrians that uh, hit our financial institutions a couple years ago simply with a denial of service attack. So a lot of our enemies out there, including terrorist organizations, have the capacity to at least uh, attempt to exfiltrate critical information. And if you were going to uh, try to uh, build a biological weapon or uh, somehow uh, genetically change its composition, I suspect that there are plenty, of, there are, not suspect, there are plenty of research institutions, both public and private, that have uh, that kind of intellectual property that would, uh, if, it, if secured in the hands of the wrong people, could uh, create uh, serious, serious problems and uh, untold consequences. And so the merger of, of, of the cyber world and the intellectual property and research dealing with pathogens is something that we're very, very concerned about. Yeah. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I think, gentlemen, and before I recognize Mr. Keating, I, I uh, have a commitment I have to uh, go to, uh, but I just want to thank uh, you for this report. Uh, we uh, will look at it very seriously in terms of legislation. 
Um, and I want to thank you for your service again. And also, uh, on the jurisdiction issue, I, I want to, um, uh, again, um, raise how important it is for Congress to fix this. It's the only recommendation not fulfilled, as you know, by the 9-11 Commission recommendations. And uh, I think as the 9-11 Commission uh, came back together and reconvened, uh, they stated that Congress would be to blame uh, if there was another 9-11 style attack, partially to blame uh, for not fixing this problem. So um, it's something that I think not just as chairman of this committee, but that the Congress as a whole has to do the right thing for the nation and, and fix, uh, again, this uh, uh, jurisdictional problem. So I look forward to working with you uh, the next year uh, as we go forward into the next Congress uh, to remedy this problem that, quite frankly, should have been fixed from, from day one, but recognizing all the problems. Uh, it's a political compromise from the beginning, but we need to fix it, uh, I think, once and for all. Uh, so let me apologize for having to uh, leave, but again, thank you for your service and the report and, uh, and your testimony here. Thank you, Chairman. Thanks for convening the hearing. Thanks for your leadership. And as, as I said earlier, we're, we're going to stay together, and uh, we're here to support uh, uh, any of the work that you want, want to do in this subject area, because the, the danger is clear and it's present. Thanks. And I leave you in good hands with the first uh, female combat pilot, uh, Ms. McSally from Arizona. Chair, recognize Mr. Keating. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, I'm going to try something different. I'm going to just put out three threads of discrete questions, and for the sake of time, have you react to those things, maybe drilling down on some things we talked about. But sure. first one, uh, you know, there's so many challenges already uh, in our intelligent communi intelligence communities, uh, coordinating, sharing information. We're getting better at it, I, I believe. Uh, but. Uh, We've commented on the severe fragmentation of how we respond to this. Uh, first area would be, uh, you know, we're dealing with the FBI, NSA, even the CDC, all that information in terms of prevention, investigation, response. How much more difficult uh, is it, this fragmentation, for the intelligence community to share information? Uh, and that's important because you can't have one without the other. Number two, uh, you know, the greatest threats we have here are, uh, it's been told to us over the past few years, uh, homegrown violent extremists and as well as domestic terrorists. Uh, and the use of social media by groups like ISIL uh, and even the easy applicability uh, of how to make a bomb with Al-Qaeda affiliates uh, has presented problems. How, second question, how easy through the social media uh, is it to translate uh, the information necessary to go forward with some of these bioterrorist attacks. Uh, how easily can that be done through the social media uh, and what threats that creates? And the other one we've touched on but haven't really talked on in any length is uh, the threats, you know, through animals, uh, how it could uh, in bioterrorist attack. And that means, uh, you know, not just the harm to the animals themselves, but it also means threats to our food supply and the transferability of these uh, diseases through animals to humans. So those are three questions. Uh, the intelligence issue, uh, homegrown uh, extremists or domestic uh, terrorists, uh, and the third one, uh, the threat through animals. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start. Uh, thanks. So it's uh, uh, quite a, 
a, a menu, and um, unfortunately, each of them um, requires a good, a good response. Um, I'm going to uh, go to the social media uh, because I'm not. I'm not. Uh, you know, I, I learned a lot about biological threats in my work on this uh, and before on the Homeland Security Committee in the Senate, um, overcoming my previous ignorance in areas of science, <laughs> but. Uh, it seems to me that if you can put instructions up on social media about how to make a bomb, you can do the same, uh, though it's not easy, but for how to, uh, how to weaponize a biological threat. The other danger here is that in the overall campaign of radicalization that uh, Islamist extremist terrorist groups carry out now every day, every hour, in uh, social media, that they will engage the commitment and attention of somebody who already brings this technical expertise with them. And we know that this has happened uh, in, in the past in, uh, uh, in various ways. So uh, look, we do a lot to try to counteract this. Uh, um, that's, a, that, that's a subject we could hold a separate hearing on, but the, 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 that, that work has to continue. You know, I, I will say that we, we decided to try to, uh, try to make this threat clear. We started on page one of this report with a scenario, a, a kind of virtual scenario, and it was uh, of a, a joint congressional hearing, I think we said nine weeks after a bioterrorist attack on the country that killed over uh, 6,000 people. It, it started with um, aerosol uh, distribution but it also included, I'd call it poisoning, infecting animal stocks with a contagious uh, disease that then went to humans. And so this is, goes to your third. This zoonotic threat is much more real. Now, some of it, it, it of course, beyond the bioterrorist threat is naturally occurring. I mean, uh, uh, last year in the avian flu uh, crisis, almost 50 million uh, poultry, uh, chickens were, were culled, euthanized. Fortunately, that didn't cross over to the human population. But, but we don't know that the next strain of avian flu won't. And how did that get here? Talk about immigration. What, migratory birds. I mean, as, as uh, and so what's, my part of this is actually tracking migratory birds, tra uh, tracking uh, as we said, uh, hard to believe that we don't have a standardized, comprehensive list in, in relatively real time of the outbreak of diseases in our animal populations, including those particularly that will transfer to humans. And yeah, that, Dr. Uh, Cole, I was just curious if you could talk about the uh, expand on the animal uh, side of it. Also, you know, with encryption with the social media and the challenges we have with that, uh, this becomes even a greater threat. And, I don't know if Dr. Cole is, has any knowledge. Is it easily transferred as to how to manufacture some of these bioterrorism uh, uh, diseases through social media? Can you instruct someone to do that? How easy is that? Did you do any research on that? Okay, I can give you a less informed response about zoonotics than I can about social media transfer, but the zoonotics clearly are a problem. A lot of the diseases that humans suffer from had origins in various animal species, monkeys, bats, birds. Uh, so there's no question that that could pose a danger. I couldn't give you a, a solid answer on 
the comparative uh, dangers from one versus another. Social media, very clear. We're all pioneers in this. How long has social media been out there as a, as a globalizing force? 20 years, 10 years? Um, yes, there are awful things that on, on social media, so awful things on internet. And when I say awful, I mean in the full broad sense of it from debasement and indecency, uh, character assassinations, and of course, instruction by some people and uh, some of the Islamic terrorist groups have publications in effect. One is called Inspire by, uh, I think it's the Islamist groups who, who then give all kinds of instructions, including in English an encouragement that uh, Americans be assassinated. They don't say how. So whatever you want to see. If we could wrap it up. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the shorthand is whatever you want to see that's bad as well as good, you can find on the Internet. Sorry. Thank you. How are you back? You know, can I just do, if you don't mind, Congressman, uh, you raised... The on the intelligence thing. issue? Or? Yes, I want to talk a little bit about that. Uh, Madam Chairman, I'd like the record to reflect that the talk button was on. <laughs> Great without, job. And, and his, time, his time is expired, this. if you don't Thank mind. Thank you very much. I, sorry about that. Strike. Uh, Secretary um, Ridge, yeah, he's out of time, so if you don't mind, we're, we're going to move on. We can follow up on that if if you'd like, but great, thank you. Uh, the chair now recognizes um, Mr. Clausen from Florida. We look alike, so. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, thank you all for your service, for coming. You know, we, uh, I, I may ask a question or two that could be tough, but your service to our country far surpasses anything that I've ever done or will do, and I acknowledge that and appreciate, humbly appreciate what you've done for our country. Um, I came in the country, I, I was in, in my private sector experience, I, I was in India, and I got nicked by the wrong mosquito. And so then a week later, I'm back in the States and I get a fever. Go to a hospital that you all would have all heard of, not in my district. Think it's malaria, think it's this, think it's that. Never did get it till I saw a specialist. Dang fever. Never came up on the map. Wasn't chikungunya, by the way. Mr. Lieberman was never even talked about. Right. And, and then I read the report here from, that was, I think, the last report by WMD that kind of gives the status of our health infrastructure with respect to being ready for these kind of threats. And we get kind of get, if it's large-scale contagious disease, we get D across, across the board. So my personal experience coincides with the last report and so I say to myself, we're, kind of, we're not prepared here. We seem to understand the situation, right? That we're not prepared. And it feels like we have a strategy to kind of move where we need to get. But in terms of execution, we're not even close. Lots of organizations and companies fail because they make wrong strategic decisions. But I think it's even more common that organizations companies, countries fail because of lack of execution. How do we execute? Our infrastructure is not owned by the government, except maybe on the border, but certainly not the healthcare infrastructure. It's all over the place. Mr. Ridge, you talked about being unfocused up here, much less you have these assets all over the place. We can talk forever about problem diagnosis or strategy, but if we can never execute, we're still going to be unprepared. 
and, and it feels like that's where we are. Am I right or am I wrong here? And if I am right, how do we execute? How do we execute? Well, I, you, you want, I'll just say uh, quickly that uh, you're absolutely right. And uh, that, that's one of our biggest conclusions. We have all these specific recommendations. But in the end, unless there's somebody to coordinate this and put together a biodefense strategy, then, then uh, all the specific recommendations and the existing programs are not going to work. I mean, we concluded, and this is a summary statement, that we're spending too much on some things and not enough on other things. And you know, just to go back to a recommendation Dr. Cole made in response to something you said, Congressman, um, we're, we're not utilizing the hundreds of thousands of healthcare professionals who are out there every day, doctors, nurses, emergency responders, to be uh, aware of um, the potential for um, um, uh, uh, an infectious disease or and a biological how, and threat. How do, given our structure, organizational yeah. ownership structure or lack thereof, how do we do that? Because if, if you don't influence the assets on the ground, you cannot execute, correct? Correct. Mr. Lieberman? So how do, how do we influence folks that we don't have operational control over so they can save lives? I don't know the answer. But I know we don't have enough influence to make it happen, unless you're going to disagree, Mr. Rich. No, I think you're absolutely right, but I'm going to take a step before you even worry about execution. And it's no, it's no accident that we talk about a blueprint. Uh, my notion of blueprints is, is you take a look at it and you're trying to connect the, the various pieces of the infrastructure to get a completed package. And to your point, uh, one, you need a strategy. Uh, you need a blueprint because there are multiple, multiple groups, multiple state, federal, local, private, you, you've identified all the groups. Everybody's doing their own thing because they've been given specific tasks. Whether or not those tasks align themselves with the strategy, we don't know because as a country, we don't have a blueprint around which we would build out strategies. And until you have that strategy, and you set priorities, and then you fund those priorities consistent with the national strategy or the blueprint, you're going to have well-intentioned, uh, but probably redundant and less effective capability, preemptive capability, and that's precisely why we chose the word blueprint. Uh, there are a lot of well-intentioned people out there doing the right thing, but whether or not it, in terms of what we need as a country, look, I'm gonna tell you as a cabinet member, I'd wanna get as, you, you, when you get to budget, you have, responsibilities and jurisdictions and programs that you're going to do everything you can to get the sufficient funding in order to execute those responsibilities. But whether or not, but HHS would have biodefense responsibilities. DOD has them. 11 or 12 departments are going to have them. And unless there is a blueprint, a national strategy, and funding is allocated consistent with a plan, with a blueprint, you're going to have the effective execution that you're, you're talking about. Thank you. Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> Thank you. The chair now recognizes the ranking member on the Subcommittee of Emergency Preparedness, Response, and Communications, Mr. Payne from New Jersey. Uh, thank you, um, Madam Chair and uh, Governor Ridge and Senator Lieberman. It's very good to see you once again and see you. Um, the work that you've done uh, with respect to uh, Homeland uh, has really created the infrastructure that we try to build on now. So we appreciate all the work that you've done uh, for this nation. Thank you. And Governor Ridge and um, 
Senator, uh, the report uh, that you um, created is critical of two programs administered by Department of Homeland Security in the biodefense mission space, BioWatch and National Biosurveillance Integration System. And uh, Ms. McSally and my subcommittee on emergency preparedness um, have a lot of oversight and done a lot of oversight uh, with respect to those two programs. Um, how much time would you uh, give the department to get these programs on the right track? Well, first of all, I think there's been recognition uh, by Secretary Johnson that BioWatch is not as effective as it needs to be. I think if my recollection is correct, my information is correct, there was supposed to be BioWatch 3 and he terminated because he knows it's not effective. NBIS is not as effective as it needs to be simply because uh, the information that should be provided by other agencies and departments to help build out that uh, uh, total situational awareness uh, has not been made available. Uh, was, I, I, I understand that, but somebody uh, has to hit the send button to send the information to DHS so they can paint a broader uh, situational awareness uh, uh, package to send out to all those who are interested. So NBIS uh, uh, ineffectiveness really requires more collaboration and cooperation with the other agencies, which speaks to the siloed nature of biodefense writ large, and one of the reasons we think it has to be elevated to the White House through the Vice President. And BioWatch, uh, listen, I'm going to give uh, Secretary Johnson's very able, dedicated public servant. I'll let him set the time frame, but I'm absolutely convinced if he doesn't get results, the kind of results he wants shortly, he'll replace it. But I'll leave it up to him to, give him to, to determine what the time frame is. Yeah, I agree, uh, Mr. Payne, and I thank you for the question. Thank you for your leadership. On this, uh, you know, the time has passed. I mean, God forbid, take a look at this scenario on page one, um, that, that there is a bioterrorist attack in, a, in an urban area where BioWatch exists, but it, it doesn't function. Right. And uh, boy, think, think about what's gonna happen as people look back and say, why, why didn't we have, we had the technological ability, why didn't we have it in place to warn us that this was happening? The other thing we say here is that there ought to be more uh, collaboration uh, with the Department of Defense, which is uh, naturally doing a lot of, um, uh, I think, pioneering work in uh, uh, biosurveillance, uh, bioprotection uh, of, our, of our, our troops, of our personnel that can be applied uh, also to uh, our, the domestic threat. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, and um, Dr. Cole, it's very good to have you here. Uh, from my district and my hometown, and uh, I should have taken the train you took, so I would have been on time. But uh, <laughs> well, I, I was coming in yesterday as you and the president oh. were going the other way. So okay. okay. Uh, let me ask you. Um, you know, everyone here agrees that the federal biodefense activities are uh, fragmented and poorly coordinated. Can you talk about the impact that the lack of coordination has on hospitals as they prepare uh, for a response to biological events? Well, when you say coordination, definitely in Newark, for example, uh, hospitals do coordinate, but not all hospitals are the same in terms of capability. 
Mm. University Hospital is what's known as a level one trauma center. Right. They can deal with virtually, or at least try to deal with virtually any form of trauma from burns right through broken bones. Uh, some of the other hospitals are not as well equipped, and in fact, some of them have departments that are superior. One of the um, benefits of coordination, which is what they do ideally when they're faced with a situation with somebody who needs special treatment, is quickly to, to send or make sure that that patient will go to the appropriate uh, hospital. I can't speak to the national scene. I assume this is so in communities, urban communities in particular, where there are uh, multiple numbers of hospitals. So coordination for some things uh, done properly. There is um, less, I think, of a coordinated uh, response or a strategic response, even from hospitals in similar areas, when it comes to bioterrorism or other forms of terror drills. Okay, and I will uh, yield back. Uh, Thank you, the gentleman yields back. The chair now uh, recognizes Mr. Donovan for New York for five minutes. Thank you, Madam Chair. Thank you to all witnesses for coming today. In the 14 years since 9-11, the threat facing this country from terrorist networks has evolved, but it has not abated. This committee has taken note of the shift from centrally planned mass casualty attacks to the seemingly random, disconnected plots hatched by lone wolf terrorists, many of whom radicalize on the Internet. Just yesterday, Chairman McCall released the committee's monthly terror snapshot which notes that the FBI has initiated more than 900 investigations into homegrown extremists, with 60 arrests this year alone. Sadly, New York City remains the top target of terrorist network across the world, and Commissioner Bratton of the New York City Police Department has stated that the current threat environment facing our city is as com complex and elevated as, as it has ever been. Given these facts, I want to thank you for focusing this past year on specific threat from bioterrorism. Whatever agent is used, a bioterrorist attack is exactly the type of mass casualty event that would shut down a city such as New York and have untold costs both economically and in human life. For my part, it's hard to imagine a target more difficult and yet more important to protect than New York City's transit system, which moves nearly 8 million people per day in and out of the metropolitan area. In regard to a 1995 sarin attack, on the subway in Tokyo, which killed 12 people and injured hundreds. I'd like to ask the witnesses, in the context of today's terrorist threats, how difficult is it for a homegrown radical who may be physically disconnected from a wider terrorist network to acquire materials and train in such a similar attack? Well, it's not easy. Um, unless that uh, individual happens to bring an expertise with them. And of course, that happens. Uh, may, may work in this field, uh, know enough to uh, construct, um, but, it, but it's definitely within the, the range of the possible. Of course, there you had a group of people in Tokyo uh, who uh, um, had enough knowledge, and they, they weren't, you know, this, these weren't PhDs, but they had enough knowledge to put together the biological weapons and carry out, or, uh, or I guess it was chemical in that case, but, uh, and, and carry out a, a very severe attack. So. You're right to be concerned about the uh, safety of the uh, subway system in the greater New York area, the transit system, and obviously New York uh, NYPD, et cetera, cooperating with federal and state authorities has one of the best counter-terrorist operations, maybe the best in the country. I think there's yeah. another dimension to your question as well. The, 
goes to our concern about uh, the, ab the absence of uh, follow-on uh, uh, surveillance technology, not only BioWatch, but uh, writ large. I mean, I remember BioWatch being implemented uh, over 10 years ago. It is uh, labor-intensive. Uh, it takes uh, quite a bit of time uh, for the lab analysis to be complete, even though they're into BioWatch 2.0. And uh, so it's not just uh, a federal program, but we need to get about the business of developing uh, surveillance and detection technologies that have application in the private sector. And one would have thought post-anthrax uh, that there would be a, uh, um, a more aggressive posture, even through DHS or elsewhere, to engage the private sector to respond to this need. And so uh, while I think it's difficult, as uh, Senator Lieberman pointed out, for a lone wolf to access the kind of contagion you talk about, it's still the possibility. But again, we're talking about preemption. We're talking about identifying the risk uh, uh, as quickly as possible and being prepared to respond and recover from it. And we don't have that capability in our public transit systems. And again, if you had a coordinated uh, blueprint, biodefense engaged both in the public and private sector, would seem to me that would be a very, very uh, significant, very high priority. Thank you, Secretary. And, and Senator, you hit on something about New York City's capabilities. Uh, I suspect during your, your studies, you, you looked at local law enforcement's efforts in coordination with our federal efforts. Are there any cities besides New York that you've seen that, that should be replicated elsewhere that are doing a very good job at this? Uh, I'm sure there are, uh, Congressman, but I can't think of any that we came across uh, in our studies. I don't know if uh, Governor Ridge can remember any. I mean, New York has uh, set the standard um, post 9-11 for obvious reasons and um, uh, continues, I think, uh, New York's that. platinum. Yeah. It's not gold, it's platinum. Yeah, but... but um, Commissioner Bratton is gonna be very pleased to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, obviously Ray Kelly before him also contributed and yeah. uh, strong leadership uh, as which uh, Commissioner Bratton has carried on. This, uh, but this threat, so, so that's a general counterterrorism program, awareness, uh, local intelligence, coordinating with federal, um, uh, raising our defenses, but the, the bio, one of the things we concluded is that there's not enough federal, state, local coordination on the specific threat of bioterrorism. And uh, it's so different, you can't see it, as somebody said, uh, the technology and the, and the medical countermeasures are not where they need to be. So uh, this continues, even in New York, uh, to need uh, more work. Thank you very much, gentlemen. I yield back, Madam Chair. Great, thank you, the Chair. Now I recognize myself for five minutes. Uh, thank you, gentlemen, for all your hard work, your service to our country, and uh, enduring a long but very important uh, hearing today. Um, I represent Southern Arizona, and I've spent a lot of time doing ride-alongs with emergency responders, fire departments, police, and especially my role as the chair of the Emergency Preparedness, Response, and Communications. We've had hearings on the threat of bioterrorism, chemical terrorism, and I'm always wanting to make sure I was in the military. It's not just the Pentagon who understands what's going on, but the troops out in the field, to use an analogy, uh, that they know what the plan is and they're ready for it. And so as I ask them, uh, you know, what if there's a bio event? You're the first people that are going to be out there. Do you know, uh, you know, how you're going to detect it? Do you know how you're going to respond to it? And oftentimes the answer is like, well, somebody else is going to tell us. We're going to get some intelligence, and they're going to be the, the first ones out there responding to that. Uh, I, you know, so I'm certainly concerned about that. Two of the bills that I've been able to pass this year through the House are related to this issue. Some you've identified in your 
uh, in your recommendations about increasing intel and information sharing down to the state and local level. And then one that was passed yesterday was related to fusion centers, uh, potentially increasing the number of uh, state and local uh, law enforcement first responders that have security clearances so that they can have that uh, you know that information because if they don't have it down in the front lines then there's just going to be chaos no plan inside the beltway is going to survive first contact with the enemy and so we really want to make sure that those emergency responders have what they need to know what's out there to not just be driving into some sort of event that they think is naturally occurring uh, to be protected themselves and then to be able to respond uh, you mentioned this a lot in your uh, recommendations, but I'd like just some additional comments and perspectives on what else can we do chipping away at this issue uh, to make sure that the first responders have what they need, intel and information sharing wise and response. Uh, Madam Chairman, I, I think you've raised a, uh, a relevant uh, issue uh, across uh, the government as it relates to uh, uh, threat information writ large. Um, I think a lot of this information, based on my own experience, is uh, overclassified. Yeah. I think it's overclassified because there's an institutional reluctance to share. Mm -hmm. It's reflective of a, a siloed mindset. Right. And if you own the information, it's a, it's a question of authority. It might be a jurisdiction. It might also be a question of dollars I don't know. So one of the things I think we need to do as we take a look at just the, the biological threat, if we can beef up the capacity with the DNI, because right now biological threat information is almost an adjunct. There's not a real specific uh, directorate within uh, DNI to focus on that and be sensible and thoughtful uh, in sharing it to those first responders who will be uh, uh, at the scene, and I'm, I'm quite convinced, and, and somebody has to frankly go the other way in terms of convincing me that I'm wrong, and I'm, uh, I'm not, uh, my feet aren't locked into concrete, but much of the information with regard to uh, biological threats uh, can be declassified and shared with people in organizations in order for them to prepare for that possibility. There's no failure, there's a failure of imagination that suggests it can't happen. It's a failure of leadership to prepare people with the information needed to uh, protect their constituencies and their communities if it does. Great, thanks. I, I just add briefly that um, uh, in the, first thanks for the legislation you brought forth and I, it actually in, uh, anticipates and kind of gets ahead of a, a, a series of recommendations yeah. we make in yeah. uh, block 16 of our uh, report of DNI. Local police departments need not only intelligence, they really do that, but they need the ability to analyze uh, a potential biological right. uh, attack or, um, uh, as it's happening. And they don't have that now, and they're only going to get it if not only the DNI, but the Justice Department assist them in uh, putting that together. Great, thanks. Uh, we had a hearing on this issue, and we uh, one of our uh, testimonies was from uh, someone from the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, and they mentioned that during a recent anthrax uh, response exercise, New York City had its medical countermeasures dispensing capability up and running for four hours before the countermeasures actually showed up. So they had the system up and running. You said it's a platinum capability, but the countermeasures didn't show up. I was surprised at one of my more rural fire departments. They said, yeah, that that uh, door over there is a C CDC stockpile. We've got it right here, you know, in southern Arizona. So what is it that CDC needs to be doing better in order to be able to respond quicker with getting the countermeasures out there, uh, especially if you've got the system set up, but they just can't, they just can't disperse them fast enough? 
Well, um, it, this is again recommendation 23, I think, Asha. But, uh, you know, allow for forward deployment, we say, of strategic national stockpile assets. I mean, this is pretty logical stuff. You, you don't want to keep it. Uh, th these attacks are not going to happen. Some may happen in Washington, but ultimately they're going to strike out across America. And if you've got to try to get the stuff that you need to prevent a, a expansion or treat people who've been hit, uh, it's just like it's a war. It's military, and we 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 pre-stage uh, 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 military equipment around the world, so it's uh, there for us, and, and that's uh, uh, one of the things that we, we recommend. Great, here. thank I, you. I agree. Uh, Secretary Ridge, you want to add to that? Uh, just yeah. just briefly, I think one of the things we've encouraged the CDC is uh, to piggyback on the senator's comments is forward deploy the capabilities that you have. I know years ago when we ran some exercises, uh, uh, top off three, four, five, I forget the numbers, but uh, it was clear that one of the big challenges we have in response to a terrorist attack, whether it's kinetic or uh, biological, is that we're still not as prepared to respond as quickly as possible. And to that end, to your earlier question, you need information as to the nature of threat to be prepared for it. And when it comes to biological, have the countermeasures available, which right now are virtually non-existent. Right. Uh, so we, we, we may have a distribution plan to deal with uh, uh, this particular pathogen, but frankly, we don't have the MCMs to distribute. Right. And, and that's why when we pull the blueprint together, we see these are, uh, these are interconnected, interdependent recommendations. Great, thank you. Uh, my time is expired, but I will just one final comment. I was glad to see you recommend uh, greater cooperation between the DOD for civil military cooperation. Um, I myself have had all the anthrax vaccines and smallpox and all that and prior to my deployments. And I know, I mean, we're dialed in and dealing with that every day. So I, I definitely want to work more. I'm on the Armed Services Committee as well to see how we can bring some of those recommendations to bear uh, so they're not re reinventing the wheel, but actually bringing best practices out to the civilian community. So That's uh, very important. And if I may, uh, Dr. Cole's recommendation earlier about better training of uh, health personnel around the country is critically important. People are going to get sick as they did with some of the anthrax right. and which he wrote uh, for, about which he wrote a book they're going to go to the doctor the doctor may, uh, or the nurse may not uh, realize that this is anthrax right exactly okay totally time has expired so the chair now recognizes mr perry from pennsylvania thank you madam chair gentlemen thank you very much for your service secretary great to see you again senator dr cole thank you, you got the, the the political the uh the uh uh, the policy and the uh, technical expertise at the table here. Uh, unfortunately, I think we have a lot of answers, but I would agree with my the, the gentleman from Florida who we look we look a lot alike that we failed to execute. I got a couple um, uh, particular questions and maybe something from about a 30,000 foot view. Um, the president, I think, points about 50 people with some biodefense responsibility, about, about around somewhere around 50. And I'm wondering if in your study, um, if you saw any duplication um, and you'd like to enumerate on that at all? I mean, yes. Uh, the, the, it was really, it's startling when you think about it, 50 political appointees, uh, presidential appointees. This, this has accumulated over a long time. They're, they just bump into each other. It's just not uh, necessary. And uh, that's the kind of uh, a, a, a real uh, overview by Congress or by federal uh, leadership like the vice president, I think, would turn that up and, and you'd save some money and probably have the operation run better, have it better implemented if you'd eliminate some of those political appointees. And I'm not looking to make it partisan or political. I just, it, 
with that many people and nobody coordinating the effort, it should be obvious to anyone that's looking at, that it uh, that you're not going to you're not going to come to solutions easily, right? Um, are you folks comfortable with the protocols of command and control and and communication if an event happens? And I'm thinking about you know the CDC, DOD, FEMA, uh, individual HERFs in individual states. Uh, uh, Pima from Pennsylvania, the National Guard, uh, NORTHCOM. If an event, are you comfortable knowing what you know now with, if an event were to occur with the chain of command and with communication in regard to disseminating information and making sure that somebody is at the top, so to speak, saying, no, 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 this isn't your jurisdiction. You go over here and do this. We need these people here. You stand down over here, but I need you from over here. Is, is that, as I don't have a, I'm not comfortable, but I don't know what you know. So give me your thoughts if you would. Well, I think your discomfort is uh, unfortunate, but uh, well-placed. Uh, let's just uh, look at how we respond to Ebola as Exhibit A. Uh, this is a pathogen that we were aware of as a potential problem for us uh, 14 years ago. I believe you were here when I mentioned that was on the list that I saw when I got into the White House. and. Uh, uh, it took 14 years to come up with, uh, unfortunately, there were two or three experimental countermeasures, and we accelerated uh, the development of a vaccine. Uh, we blew right through protocol as we needed to, given the emergency. It should not have been an emergency. But then how we coordinated public information, how we worked with hospitals, how we worked with the first responders, it was, uh, it was uh, very, very disorganized. And in spite of the well-intention of the president in naming a czar, Czars uh, really don't have too much authority to coordinate activity among the uh, the agencies that you're talking about. So your discomfort level is well placed. So I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Secretary, but I saw it as somewhat ad hoc based on the situation on the ground. Would you? Yeah. Would that be a fair assessment from my standpoint? Okay. So That's you fair. two in particular have been legislators. Um, this seems to me, and and with Mr. Clausen's uh, kind of pinpointing execution as an issue, um, this is this is a matter of prioritization, if nothing else. At the at the executive at the doing business end of government, right, where you're making decisions and you're making things happen, um, I just see it as a matter of priority or lack of priority or will or whatever you want to call it at that level. I can't change that. I'm sitting in in the United States Congress, which I'm privileged and honored to be here. But as legislators, how do we set the table? How do we? How, what can we do? What is our part? I mean, I see a lot of oversight. And, 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 you know, making sure that there's not duplication and agencies are focused, but we're legislators. So how do we set the table? How do we, um, how do we set our, the conditions, if you will, on the battlefield for success for the executive who does make it a priority when that, when that comes to... I think part of it, from my own experience in the Senate, is oversight and exposure when it doesn't exist. I'm going to give you a quick example. Uh, we all remember how embarrassed we were about the failures of the federal and state government, but talk about federal, to Hurricane Katrina. Um, we, we did a, an investigation uh, of that and what happened, and then working together, Senate Homeland Security, House Homeland Security, we passed a, I think, a really strong reform bill in which we set out some standards. So we did pass legislation. One of the things that was done was that FEMA set up, I forgot for the moment whether it's 10 or 12 regional centers at which every potential governmental agency that would be involved in a response to a natural disaster has representatives, and they drill uh, on, uh, on, on how to respond 
<clears throat> and they've changed what they're drilling on based on the part of the country. Obviously, in the Gulf Coast, it's more about hurricanes. Maybe in some parts of uh, Oklahoma, it's more about uh, tornadoes. One of the really important things you mentioned, we haven't talked about enough here, is but uh, you did, uh, Madam Chair, is uh, the importance of clear and consistent communications, which we didn't have in response to the Ebola crisis. Because one of the dangers is public panic, particularly if there's more contagion going on than uh, existed in a, Ebola. And you can get ready can I for clarify, that. clarify, if you'll indulge me, Madam Chair? But you're talking about the, the solutions that you folks rightfully enacted, seeing the, the problems that occurred with Katrina or our failure to be prepared. But right. as you would certainly acknowledge, we can't wait, right? We, like, we can't wait until this no. happens, right? We've got to be proactive. You're because absolutely. once it happens, it, it's, it's too late. So, so how do we set the table? Do you have a blueprint? You have a blueprint there, but do you have a blueprint for legislation or legislative and particular oversight actions from the Congress uh, in this regard right now? Well, I think I have a very practical but very, very difficult suggestion. If the White House, hopefully in collaboration with the Congress of the United States, develops a blueprint, a strategic blueprint, then it'll be up to the individual committees and committee chairman and ranking members and all 535 men and women in both the House and the Congress to resist, to resist uh, the uh, exhortation from, from uh, cabinet secretaries and deputy secretaries, I know it was the blueprint, but really, really, you, we really need to go in a different direction. I mean, there's a, uh, that's, that's a challenge, that's a, a working condition that Congress has dealt with forever, departments and secretaries and undersecretaries and agencies have special relationships with committees that oversee them. There's a bias based on strong professional and sometimes personal relationships, all well-intentioned, but the only way you get a blueprint, take a blueprint to execute, is if everybody buys into the strategy and make sure that the dollars go to the, pro the priorities established mm -hmm. in concert with the White House and resisting the temptation of cabinet secretaries such as Tom Ridge from DHS said, I understand the blueprint, but really I think we ought to be doing X, Y, Z. And that institutionally is the biggest challenge that the Congress has and the biggest challenge the country has in establishing not only a blueprint, but your colleague said, executing on a game plan. Remember, I've been, I've been there, I've been downtown. Uh, that's the chemistry, that's the alchemy, that's the challenge, not only for this issue, but across the board. Thank you, Madam Chair. Great question. Your indulgence. Thank you. I want to thank our witnesses for your, Dr. Cole, you have one final word there? Um, yes. Um, I'm, I'm going to try to lighten the darkness about this whole subject matter by noting that uh, a biological attack, a biological weapon, um, offers something that none of the other likely weapon systems do, whether explosive, chemical, or heavy radiological. Namely, that after exposure, after the event, the release event, you still have time. In many cases, days. In some few cases, weeks during an incubation period, even if a person doesn't know he or she is infected, if, um, 
vaccination in some cases days after an, a, an exposure, particularly to smallpox, can still be effective. Um, antibiotics, antivirals, other medications. That's where we ought to be working on medical countermeasures. And four hours, I think, is what you mentioned was the light. Four hours would not have been devastating for a lot of disease exposures. So that doesn't worry me as much as if it were another form of attack. So that ought to be taken into consideration and all the more emphasis then on being able to identify whether there is some kind of organism in the air or in the drink or in some other fashion. Um, and therefore, the frontliners for this kind of identification will be the medical responders, the educated physicians, the nurses who will see the sick patient first and have a notion that, well, you know, maybe based on my knowledge because of terror medicine, uh, we ought to be considering this as a possible deliberate agent, deliberately released agent. Great. Thank you. I want to thank all of our witnesses for your work on this important issue, your testimony today. Thanks to the members for their questions. Uh, and members may have some additional questions um, that they will submit in writing, and we'd ask if you'd be able to respond within uh, uh, 10 days. Uh, pursuant to Committee Rule 7E, the hearing record will be open for 10 days. Without objection, the committee stands adjourned. Thank you. Good, I got mine. <laughs>